When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we have a guest on the podcast who goes by the name of Vosh. Vosh is perhaps the most popular socialist on the web today. And during our conversation with him, we touch on topics of socialism versus capitalism, what a socialist society actually looks like versus what some of the myths that we might have in our minds are. We also discuss racism and, in fact, disagree about where it exists in today's society and conclude with a discussion of morality and how we can best form a just society. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. So one of the reasons that we wanted to chat with you is because we, uh, I'm not a trained economist or anything, but we often talk about the virtues of capitalism versus other systems. And it is, socialism is so often used as a uh, criticism. You know, you're a socialist or you're a communist and you are someone who unabashedly, proudly uh, is a socialist. So I'm curious to you, what does that mean in the way that you use it? How does that, uh, what sort of policies and ways of approaching the world fall under that, that term? Yeah. So for for me, socialism is all about economic democracy, functionally. Um, Back during the Enlightenment times, when the primary means of sort of like civilizational economic organization was mercantilism, generally speaking, when corporations wanted to move around, they did so with the implicit permission of the state. And laissez-faire capitalism, you know, Adam Smith, the ye olden days, the, the basic premise was, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we all had the freedom to achieve great independent economic prosperity? And to an extent, that's what capitalism affords us. But the criticism, and this is a criticism that I agree with, is that um, giving individuals the freedom to rule over others is not actually a system which begets freedom. That capitalism, while it does afford anybody the ability to get big, cannot afford everybody the ability to get big. And therefore, I would say to advocates of capitalism, the same thing that I would say to advocates of feudalism, which is, it's all well and good that some people get all that power, and sometimes merit may even be involved. But would it not be better if we all had the opportunity to collectively take from what we produce a piece of the pie? And that's what I advocate for, economic democracy. Everybody who works at a given firm collectively owns that firm. It's essentially a worker co-op. And if you distribute that process across a whole civilization, I mean, you've got essentially the economic backbone of socialism, which, and a lot of people, when they think socialism, they think Stalin, they think tanks rolling down Main Street. And that's a very unfortunate association, because I think, if anything, socialism done properly is the least coercive possible economic system. And so when you say it's distributed ownership and it's democratic, does that mean completely equally distributed? Like, does this mean everybody has to have some equity in the company or this means that the founder and the janitor and everyone in between would have the same vote and the same amount of the economics? 
what you're describing is called a flat cooperative, which I personally, I don't think are sustainable past a certain size. Um, we have to accept the fact different types of labor produce different types of results. And I do think it's okay for there to be some kind of um, tiered distribution. Many existing co-ops have such a thing. Usually flat co-ops are for very small, uh, very small firms. Have Got either it. of you played um, Dead Cells, these, uh, uh, the video game? I've not. No, uh, brilliant video game. Anyway, I think 11, 12 people worked in it. Flat co-op, you know, guy who's hired day one and guy who's hired four years down the line, same wage. Incredible work. Doesn't work for every industry. I think it's not so much about compensation as it is the internal democratic process. Managers aren't chosen, they're elected. And executive decisions are made through a bottom-up process where everybody gets at least some input on what's being done with their labor. Hmm. Got it. And so I understand the, the compensation perspective once leaders are democratically elected do they then have more votes as well which is to say like let's say we're making a decision we're a 50 person company but it's not necessarily that 50 people put a vote into a hat it's that whoever's elected as president might have 10 votes to cast whereas whoever is the lowest level would only have one vote but they still have a vote I think that it would be up to the people on the ground, the people doing the initial vote, the managerial vote, to decide what tasks the manager should be responsible for. There are some things I think everybody should get a decision on, like very large, uh, you know, like wh where are we moving this firm? You know, what big decisions are we making? But then there are things that I think like kept at a managerial level, it's probably best, like scheduling decisions, for example. If everyone had to vote on that, it would be it would be chaos every single week. So I think it would be up to them. And there are many, many, many different ways that this could function. I just think that introducing that baseline expectation of democracy would be really good. And there's data on the effectiveness of co-ops as well. And it seems that, I mean, if you look at them across the board, there's like a lot of really positive stuff about like worker happiness and productivity. And it seems like much with our liberal democracies, you know, that we live in politically, there are advantages in terms of happiness and productivity associated with everybody feeling like they're a participant mm -hmm. in the society they live in. Sure. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to understand, I'm literally just trying to understand how the rules work. Cause I know like yeah, this is yeah. not what every socialist would identify as their definition of socialism. So socialism no, no. to you, it's not so much governmental as it is about corporate America. It doesn't reflect like a lack of having a president. It's that companies are democratic as well. And someone could still have 50 times as much ownership in a company if they're the CEO and the founder relative to the lowest level person. But everybody gets a vote on the major things. And everybody owns some percentage of the company, even though it might be this guy owns 1%, this guy owns 30%. Did I, yeah, am I roughly for, understanding correctly? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, for me personally, because of my political leanings, I would prefer the flattest possible hierarchy that could function in any given society. That means democratically with how our elections function. That means in firms with how they do their you know, how they manage things. And it's really just a matter of how effective they could be at any given level of flatness, basically. If every American, like if every American citizen, all 180 million eligible voters had to individually vote on every single policy to come out of Congress, like direct voting on every single thing, I don't know how well that would work. Yeah, yeah. So we have tiered systems of representation. We live in a republic. And I think that struggling to find that balance should be the dominant economic question today. Nowadays, we argue about like, we argue about whether or not letting immigrants in or raising the minimum wage from $7.25 to $15 an hour would be like devastating to our economy. These are asinine questions to me. To me, I want us to be asking, how can we best realize the American dream in how our economy is structured? Mm. So when it comes to uh, democracy, I've, I've 
I was thinking a lot about this at the beginning of COVID because I, I was, you know, are there limitations to the general value of democracy? If everybody votes that we need to burn down the 5G towers and not wear masks, is that uh, are these outcomes that we want to have? And I think of the same thing within sort of a corporate environment or any sort of familial environment. So do you see uh, competing forces with the expansion of democracy that you would need to have in place? For instance, that you also need to have some sort of baseline business education, that there would be things that would need to qualify one for that? Or is it just if you are old enough and work in a place, you deserve the right to vote in its future and how it conducts its business? I think it's about priming the average citizen to expect to participate in these systems. Mm -hmm. Because that was an argument made against democracy originally, way back in the day, that the average peasantry, I mean, because back then they were illiterate, they were, I mean, quite ignorant, you know, 16th century European peasants. Um, And the argument was made, these people can't govern themselves. And to an extent, that's true. Mm -hmm. One of the big arguments for uh, public education is that every citizen needs to be at a baseline level of education for them to be even able to function in a democracy. And I agree with that. And I think that applies to um, worker ownership as well. I think that if we foster that expectation, and then along with like, getting trained for the job you do, you're also getting trained for the democratic structure of the workplace you're entering, which I don't think would be that hard to do. I think you prime people to be more um, capable of managing those those responsibilities. Well, I also think the the only problem with what you're describing is if you don't localize it and then if people can basically fuck shit up and then go somewhere else to escape but like let's say that it was just towns were deciding what caused covid mm-hmm. and a town was like i think it's 5g towers and so they burned down all their 5g <laughs> towers and they refused to wear masks it's like okay you're just not allowed to leave your town now like if this doesn't work and you all get covid and you miss having 5g because we're all downloading stuff really fast and you're not just like live with the consequences mm-hmm. but the problem comes when you have people who are like getting famous on YouTube for saying that that's the case, getting all the money. Yeah, no skin in the game. But then they still have 5G on their phone and they won't let anyone talk to them unless they're wearing masks. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? But Mm -hmm. if there was a town that, I mean, I'm I'm fine with this. That was just like, that we're really, really positive. This isn't a virus and this is how we're going to handle it. My only thing would be, please don't leave your town. Just Mm -hmm. deal with the consequences of your decision. So this isn't this isn't a criticism. Well, I guess it is a criticism of democracy, but you have the same problem in any sort of authoritative uh, structure, which is that the majority can be wrong, right? The the majority can can uh, make bad things, and I'm I'm assuming and often are yes. as a matter of fact. And I'm assuming that your perspective is so can a singular uh, technocrat, and at least we're better off with the the majority of people signing their own death warrant or making yeah. whatever poor <laughs> decision. I mean, we, we have that problem with American democracy For today, 100%. where a lot of the decision-making that comes out of the top seems like it's geared towards the interests of a small group of plut- plutocrats, bankers, mm-hmm. investors, and you know um, business moguls. And I mean, what we're arguing about fundamentally is material conditions. What are people incentivized to do when they have the power to influence change? And it, certainly there are problems with democracy. Democracy does not instantly mean freedom. America was ostensibly a democracy back in the 1950s, we did very bad things with our ability to democratically decide, for example, what racial policies we should implement. Um, it, of course, wasn't a perfect democracy, but you can do bad things in a democracy. But generally speaking, with the right preconditions, I would trust a democracy to an autocracy basically any day of the week. And the good thing about corporations, too, and this is unique, by the way, to worker co-ops, you don't see this in a country, is that since a firm's ultimate driven purpose is to produce a profit, as it would be in any cooperatively owned system as well, unless we're talking about decommodification, but that's a whole other thing. Um, 
If there are bad decisions being made by members of a firm, those consequences are felt. If you're doing a bad job running a business, everybody makes less money because all of you take cuts from the total profits. Whereas in a country, countries are large enough that you can make bad decisions and those outcomes can only be felt by a small portion, say the poor or a given racial minority or foreigners. The externalities of a firm are reduced compared to the externalities of a country. And I think that might be a better argument for democracy being implemented there. Got it. And do you think this has to be pushed from the top? Because my, my questioning is, if it's a superior way to run a business, right? If a democratic business has happier employees, people are getting paid more, so it attracts the most talent. Now you're like making the most money. You're going you're gonna to ultimately be the best company. So does the government need to tell people to do this? Or within the realm of capitalism, won't Darwinism just make co-ops win in the long run if it's the best way to run a business? Depends on your goals, right? I think de democratic societies tend to function better than autocratic ones. But if you just let a bunch of different tribes, let's say societies, loose on the you know plains of Europe, and you give them some time with no external overriding rules about what you're allowed to do to others, inevitably, the warlords and autocrats are going to win because they don't have to play by the same rules. And what you find is with worker cooperatives, even if there is like a really uh, productive and happy internal structure, it's that these systems don't function that well when other more autocratic firms work together to maintain a system of a you know, economics that benefits them. Uh, if you're a CEO or a stockholder, you don't want systems like this taking root in how our country functions. That's antithetical to your goals. So you will lobby as best as you can. You will try to form um, monopolies or at the very least, like very tight market strangleholds to prevent entryism into the market. There are actually, if you look back on it, there are actually, there have been attempts to democratize a ton of like, um, uh, I wish I could remember the specific names of these corporations, but like ISPs, for example, or utility companies, or sometimes even like tech startups that are more, I guess you would say democratic, but they tend to get shut down more aggressively or bought out because it sets a bad precedent in those markets. You can also look at the laws for banks and their loan rates to um, cooperative markets. They're much, much lower than what you would get from a traditionally owned firm. So there are a lot of these institutional barriers, some of which are malicious in nature, and a lot of which are just people being ignorant of this being a system that could work. Um, I guess the big step now is about normalizing it. And if a time ever comes where legislation could be introduced to this effect, personally, I think the way our economy functions now is really unethical. We may live in a democratic society, but the whims of one's life for most workers are driven day to day by a system they have no control over. Mm -hmm. If they're a worker in a plant or a retail worker or whatever, they have no control over that system. And I think that leads to some really bad outcomes. What I want long term, and I know I'm rambling, I'm sorry. No, no, you if, if this could be, this could be like um, OSHA, this could be like worker health and safety, you know, there's a government branch, people don't talk about it that much, it just does what it does. And it just mandates some baseline level of democratic participation in firms above a given size, mm -hmm. not mom and pop businesses, not two people doing a startup. But if you're a large corporation, just a set of baseline principles, you get to vote on that, you know, Everybody gets some slice of the pie. I think a step like that would be really, really great. We have to normalize it, and we have to make people happy with those changes first. So not like some tyrannical top-down takeover or anything like that. Got it. So one of the questions that I have, the driving idea behind this, what is the philosophy that underscores it? And what I mean by that is, do you feel that the lowest paid workers at General Electric, for instance, 
are contributing value that contractually they don't have a right to recoup? Or is it that society as a whole is just better off, even if they don't necessarily have a uh, causal relationship with the value that that company is creating? Like say that the janitor at General Electric, you can't really trace that amount of equity back to him and it would be really hard to account for it that way. But it's just better that everybody has a vote, even if we can't say, you know what, you you necessarily deserve this in that uh, capitalist exchange type system. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, no, completely. And it's really, really hard to quantify. Back in the days, the Marxist argument was surplus value referred to the amount of wealth produced by your labor that you weren't receiving. So if you work for an hour and produce $100 worth of widgets, but you're paid $10, $90 of that is surplus value, which is being taken by the owner or whatever managerial forces above you. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And that's fine. And I think that holds up today. But nowadays, economies are so complicated. People don't work in factories. People work service jobs. Mm-hmm. It's harder to immediately quantify what everybody's like wealth is worth. But at the end of the day, to me, it's not a matter of making sure everyone is compensated for the exact amount of wealth they produce, because that can get really asinine and complicated. And I don't want people doing trigonometry to figure out how much janitors should be paid. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, for me, it's just about the, the underlying virtue of democratic participation. One of the big arguments that really frustrates me is a lot of people will say, so you'll hear like, um, somebody who works a minimum wage job, and they'll be like, I can't afford to live in Seattle, you know, Mm -hmm. and invariably, people will come out and they'll say, well, don't live in Seattle, you can go live in Kentucky, there are $600 a month rent places out there. If you have if you can pay 2000 a month, you'll live like a king, you know, why are you living in Seattle? Why are you subjecting yourselves to these prices? And the argument that always gets missed here is that Seattle would literally not function if it weren't for minimum wage workers, you want everybody paid minimum wage to leave these major cities? these cities would die, they would rot. The underbelly of society, all of the janitors and service workers and all these people are necessary to its function. So that they should be discluded from its operation, to me, is a moral crime. Well, they wouldn't used to be. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. I was just thinking they wouldn't, the cities wouldn't um, fall apart. What they would do is they would be forced to lower their rent to reattract those people. Oh, that I mean, that would be the hope, right? But then you have to organize. Well, I mean, you're literally describing a general strike right now. If you're or like a rent strike, if you're talking about a bunch of people leaving until like X happens, then you're talking about a rent strike. And I would advocate for that. Absolutely. Um, and then you have like all the predatory housing policies like the, the NIMBYs and they don't want more housing bill because they want to keep the value of the property they bought in 1978 as high as possible. Um, it all gets so complicated. I just fundamentally, I think one of the big problems in our society is that a very small group of people have a lot of power and very niche issues. Mm -hmm. And it makes it very difficult to fix problems that should have obvious solutions. There are obvious solutions to the healthcare problem in this country. There are obvious solutions to the immigration problems in this country, but we can't do anything about it because the people in charge of making those decisions don't have the same values as us because they don't have to have the same values. They're too rich or they're bought out by corporate donors or they're too isolated from the concerns of the average American, and it makes it impossible to get anything done. I have a question about that. One of the things that I, um, <laughs> any sort of bifurcation to working class, you know, proles and bourgeoisie or the elites mm-hmm. and the others, I, I am of the belief that the line between good and evil runs through every man's heart, such that if us, you know, all of us wonderful, not rich people <laughs> were, were placed into positions of power, we would behave identically to the people in those positions of power. And I'm curious if you see that too, or if you think that there are really two different kinds of people, you know, the uh, greedy ones that just want everything for themselves and then other people that just want a fair chance at life. 
Not at all. Greed isn't, I don't think there's anything wrong with greed principally. Mm -hmm. And you're completely right. If we were to flip the switch and everybody who was born to a single mother in like inner Brooklyn ended up getting put in the position of like, uh, you know, stockholder, you know, kingpins on, on Wall Street and vice versa, I think fundamentally you'd get a little bit of a mix up. But after a month, everything would stay exactly the same. Mm -hmm. That's what I was talking about vis-a-vis -vis material conditions. People act in predictable ways and predictable situations. I don't want to flip who's in charge. I want to change the way people can be in charge. Okay. But yeah, no, you're completely right. There are plenty of terrible, terrible, awful, like poor people. And there are virtuous, wealthy people. I don't like it when people make this in matter of moral essentialism. Sometimes you, you hear this with cops too, like all cops are bastards. There is a line of reasoning to that argument. Like if you're a cop, you're participating in a bad system, period, regardless of your individual moral virtue. But some people, they take that to a point and they're thinking like, every individual cop is personally like a bad human. And that's very strange to me. Because cops, I mean, they're subject to the exact same set of material pressures as the rest of us, fundamentally. They're working class. A lot of them got to where they are because being a cop is one of the best paying, like, middle class jobs you can get in a lot of these dying Midwestern towns, you know? So did putting on, was there like a curse on the badge that, you know, was placed <laughs> on them? Like what, for me, the argument should be, be very hard on systems, be easy on individuals. We're all struggling. I think the systems are the things we should be so concerned about. Got it. Oh, Got it. That. Yeah. So uh, I think this this kind of uh, one of the questions that I have because I've been thinking about charity and and giving, and I believe you're a consequentialist. Is that correct? I was watching your politics 101. Before I ask my question, how do you characterize the way that you think about morality? Is it pure consequentialism? Is it something that needs to be added to that or subtracted from it? Yeah. So I I just I think that moral value comes from action. I don't think it's about people. I don't think it's about like necessarily intention. It's just you do good things or you do bad things. Mm -hmm. And what you get is a really complicated set of like overlapping consequentialist arguments where a person isn't good or bad. They're the sum of the good or bad things that they do, but you want them to do the bad things they do with good intention because it makes it more likely that you could persuade them to do good things in the future. Mm -hmm. And it gets really complicated. And I mean, to be honest, if I were to argue it for more than 30 seconds, I would belie a significant Got it. Uh, ignorance of philosophy. But generally <laughs> speaking, one thing that really bugs me, politically minded people, they argue out of principle. I don't know what that means, mm -hmm. out of principle. To me, my principle is you do the things that are good and you try not to do the things that are bad. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, they seem, um, I got this argument all the time when it was like voting for Biden or not voting for Biden. It's like, to them, there are, there are acts which endow the actor with moral virtue or with the opposite. And the ones which are most virtuous are the ones which should be pursued, but you do it not for the sake of you, the action, you do it for like the individual merit. These arguments get really, really complicated, but I'm, I'm sorry, I'm way off the weeds. Yes, I think, I'm consequentialist, I think that generally speaking, we should measure moral worth by the consequence of what takes place after we do a thing. Interesting. Yeah. So I think this is where I, I, I sense we disagree the most. With all the socialism stuff, I didn't understand it, but I think I'm very much on board and I can uh, just- Yeah, you have a unique uh, brand of socialism, mm -hmm. which is interesting. I, I mean, it's a shame, I think, with uh, with words, people like just have their own definitions. And so often you'll hear someone say Black Lives Matter, and that means- a hundred different things to a hundred different people. And you'll say, I'm a socialist. And that can mean anything from, I want 75% tax rates for everybody who makes over 20 grand a year, or it can mean I want 
democratized businesses. Yeah. So people, it's 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 some of it is a matter of misrepresentation. Obviously, the mainstream media doesn't give socialism a particular charitable rap. A lot of it is also, I think, people like placing different value on different aspects of advocacy for socialism. A lot of this was spelled out 150 years ago. Marx said it himself. I mean, Marx, the people will say like, um, communists are all about equality. Marx didn't give a damn about equality. He specifically wrote about it. He didn't care at all about equality. What he cared about was freedom. He thought that in a society which would get the greatest amount of individual freedom, that people would, of their own volition, arrive at whatever life paths were deserving of their personal characters. I think that's an agreeable argument. It's the same reason why libertarianism was originally a left-leaning idea. So, but nowadays people associate socialism with big government and communism, or sorry, and big government and like authoritarianism. Yeah, It all gets so strange. Uh, to be fair, by the way, there's another big element of socialism that we haven't discussed, which is like the decommodification of industry, mm-hmm. which gets into its own whole thing. But I think I, most of those arguments are pretty agreeable as well. Do you like Medicare for all? Uh, I don't know. When it comes to policy, I, I throw my hands up in the air and go, I don't know. But I actually do think there's when – I, when I've listened to you, the foundational thing that we have in common is that if you think of the hierarchical pyramid, I want to see that bottom level raised, even if it means shaving some off the top. I don't know that I'm ultimately for like flat as possible because I think that I would like different decisions to lead to different outcomes in terms of what people can get. Uh, so Medicare for all I think will eventually be – as obvious as clean drinking water in in much of the developed world. Like we already have socialism. We have Medicare for all. In some form. Like it might be UBI. It might not be Medicare. Yes. I think people, when they, it's funny when we talk about Medicare for all and we just gloss over the fact that we have it in the form of clean drinking water, right? We've provided a baseline level of, uh, of taking care of our populace as just obvious and given and a human right. And then we go, oh, but no further. You know, it seems kind of silly. And just as important is removing that um, baseline taking care of people from mm-hmm. market forces. Because mm-hmm. that's one of the big things. When in, in, this is the capitalist argument, by the way. You could read this out of Adam Smith. This is not Karl Marx saying this. Capitalism functions best when we're talking about commodities which can be exchanged along an elastic price curve. Mm-hmm. You want people to be able to make informed decisions about the product that they're buying. But that system breaks down on certain commodities. So, for example, if you price a, a, a video game at a dollar, single dollar, you know, everyone will buy it. One dollar. Easy. You price it at a thousand dollars. Very few people are going to buy it. The system works. But say insulin, how high you got to price insulin before a diabetic person's not going to buy it. They'll pay anything. They're dead if they don't get it. So the price curve breaks on something that essential. And you find the same with things like education, transportation, water, food. These are systems where market forces tend to impede efficiency and like meritous distribution of wealth and resources. So the argument for these things would be, and that's what Medicare for all does by removing private insurance is fuck it. Just make these things free. Pay higher taxes, make these things free. The market forces don't work on them. We know our American healthcare system is broken. We've already done this with education. Some cities do this with transportation. We are capable of doing this. It's just a matter of the decision being made by the people who actually need these systems as opposed to the people who profit off of their current dysfunctional status. What do you think about the cutting edge of innovation needing to have market pressures? For instance, so take insulin. I don't know, however many years ago it, it did not exist. Mm-hmm. If if I am a selfish person entering into the medical field and you tell me that I'm, I have to charge a wage or a price that people can afford for something, 
uh, I might redirect my efforts to something else that just personally earns me more money and thus not pursue innovation, which would develop insulin. So do you think that there's a time period or a cutting edge that needs to have those market pressures where there is price gouging and there's tons of money to be made? Or is it- I mean, oh, here's my trap card though, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, a lot of these big pharmaceutical developments are done through public funding. Like the Mm -hmm. research is done through grants you get from the government. They're done by university professors and the like, but that's not all of it. You say, let's talk about the private sector, right? So here's the kicker then. In the private sector, in the way things work currently, the people who profit from big pharmaceutical innovations are CEOs and stockholders. In a democratic economic society, if you are a scientist, a researcher, and you develop one of these things, and you develop some pharmaceutical innovation, you're on the hook for that. Right now, the credit gets taken by the company. In a democratic system, it's the individual, the person who actually makes that leap, or the team more likely, it's very rarely an individual, who actually gets the glory, and more importantly, they get the money for it. My argument would be that in a democratic um, economy, it's actually a better incentivizer for um, for uh, innovation because the fruit of that innovative labor goes to the people who innovate and not to the people who own the labor of those who innovate. Hmm. Yeah, and then the only question is, where does the capital come from for all the, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, because like I could be a brilliant scientist, but I'm going to need 50 million dollars to. Oh, for, get for Medicare for all the I assume the government would buy. I mean, right now, if the pharmaceutical industry makes something cool, usually the government does end up buying like right now with like with the um, the covid vaccine, like we bought millions and millions of um, of uh, Pfizer vaccines from that German company well, from, from Pfizer. Yeah. And the two who made it were these Turkish immigrants. But everyone just talks about the company, Pfizer, Pfizer. These people made it. I say. Scientists are workers too. Innovators, entrepreneurs, inventors. These people are they're, they're workers. Oh, for sure. I think that no. they should be afforded the greatest possible respect for what they do. Yeah, and all all I was saying is that there's so like let's say that you're doing SpaceX, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a scientist who figures out how to land a space shuttle back. You know what I mean? So you launch it up, you land it back. This is game changing technology in a democratic company. I won't even say a socialist company. In a, in a democratic company, that person would get compensated for it. But you would also compensate the person who put $200 million on the line to make that happen, which mm-hmm. is to say the company would, within itself, negotiate terms. Some of the upside is going to go to the scientists. Some of the upside is going to go to the person that provided the capital and made it possible. And they can figure it out themselves within their organization. And I like oh, that. Oh, absolutely. The, the only but thing the terms- I don't want... Is, um, would certainly be more favorable to the to the innovator, to the scientist, because in a democratically run economy, they would have had a say in the drafting of these contracts to begin with. Right now, the, more, the, the priority of any given firm is to draft contracts which benefit the, um, the CEO, the stockholders to the greatest possible degree. More beneficial to the scientist than today would occur or more beneficial to the scientist than to the person that puts up the money at risk? Than today. In anything yeah, like I'm, space. No, no, in, makes all sense. I, I, the one part like that gets space, let out. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, the one part that just sometimes gets left out is like, there is actually value to someone giving you $200 million to experiment in technology. And yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you of course. It's, get that it gets really, really complicated because what you, nobody, like we aren't, we aren't whittling statues out of like logs of wood mm-hmm. that we find in the forest. You know, like obviously anything, especially something as complicated as pharmaceutical technology or SpaceX is going to involve literally thousands of people down the supply chain from people in, in in the third world who are making the metal that gets shipped to America to be assembled into the rocket to the geniuses who are developing these formula and you know I don't know what they do with SpaceX I'm sure it's very complicated but <laughs> it, it all gets very complicated yep. and 
I guess I would rather the complexities be decided by everyone than the complexities being decided by people who have all the power and the greatest incentive to make the most amount of money from the labor of everyone beneath them. Mm -hmm. You know? Sure. So can you tell me why I saw you talk about the the hierarchical pyramid that you can sort of draw that that encompasses society. Can you tell me why you don't simply want to raise the floor but also want to shrink that hierarchy? Because when I think about it, it seems to me that the value comes from setting a minimum quality of material life that people can expect to experience if they live in your tribe, your country, your world, whatever, but that there is not necessarily moral goodness to setting a ceiling only insofar as you need to set a ceiling in order to redistribute to raise that floor. So do you think that there's there's moral value to just having a thinner hierarchy generally, or is it you're just trying to raise the floor? I don't really care about the ceiling mm-hmm. with regards to wealth. Mm-hmm. If somebody wants to be a hyper trillionaire and fly around in space forever, okay. What I care about the ceiling is with 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 power. That's what really bothers me. Unfortunately, in the society we live in today, wealth does correlate to power mm-hmm. pretty strongly, which means that those two things are going to be related. That's not necessarily the case, though. Even back in the past, there were societies where enormously powerful merchants would still have to step off the sidewalk and bow when faced with a comparatively like poor nobleman. You know, mm-hmm. the the association of wealth and power is something pretty specific to a capitalist economy. But with regards to um, flattening that top you know you can make that argument about monarchies take it back 14th century france for example you know the peasantry are poor they're dirty they're smelly they're uneducated they're illiterate um they're starving now if you wanted to i mean you could make arguments for raising the standard of living for the peasantry for centuries down the line and you could hypothetically achieve a society with a greater average life expectancy and human happiness under a monarchy than America has today under a democracy. The argument that I would make is that, and you could do all that. I mean, Medicare for all doesn't require a president. You could be, you could have a king, you could have a god emperor and have Medicare for all in public education. The argument I would make is that the more hierarchical one society, the more a small group of people control a lot of power, the less likely you are to bring about those changes because it's ultimately up to the people in power what changes get made. And historically, monarchies have only ever improved the quality of the the peasantry's lives to the point where it doesn't lead them to starvation and you have enough stock to raise soldiers from. That was the line. And now in a democratic society where we nonetheless have a very plutocratic upper crust of wealthy people and the people who work for them, you know, we keep people educated and well-fed up to the point where they don't revolt. That's basically the line. Mm -hmm. We keep people happy enough that they participate in the system and they keep the economy running smoothly. But that is the line. And we've been stuck here for like 80 years since FDR implemented like the baseline level of like social, you know, like a social net in this country, we've kind of been stuck here. There have been some movements, but it's pretty, pretty minimal compared to what we're capable of doing. My argument is that flattening the top is necessary to bring up the bottom with regards to political power. If they want to be billionaires and live in the Cayman Islands, that's fine. I don't care Mm -hmm. as long as it doesn't influence policymaking in my country. Got it. No, and I think that that is... When the, the terms that I think of to uh, understand that are that if people at the top of the power hierarchy do not have the same interests and they don't have skin in the game of the decisions that they're making for everybody, like you said, they're less likely to make decisions that benefit people and they make decisions that do benefit them insofar as they can raise an army and, <laughs> and not get kicked out of their positions of power, which makes total sense. Um, the, one of the things that I think about, because I'm not very political, I, I'm much more, um, I don't know if, if I'm an individualist or what is 
there's two ways to attack that problem of not having skin in the game. One is by government coming in and setting up systems that that put you know the general populace in positions of power such that okay we each are still operating as selfish individuals but now more selfish individuals have skin in the game and the other is through uh, Marcus Aurelius type personal <laughs> exploration to try to realize that you are connected to your fellow man and that you know someone suffering on the other side of the world even if you can't feel it uh, is your skin in the game and I know that doesn't come naturally but not that you need to have an opinion on this but that that is the tact that I find myself trying to take more and more often it's less involved with politics which is messy and you can screw it up and you can try to do something and it can backfire and more interested in I guess uh, personal virtue does yeah. that does well that I, if, if it were, were only everyone capable of that sure and sometimes it comes down to decision making that people don't even consider political take for example like uh, elon musk for example a lot of people have a lot of thoughts on him i'm not going to share mine but whatever your thoughts on him may be this guy is very Mm anti-union and when and he's anti-union because he has stockholders who tell him hey you've got to crack down on this like it's probably not some personal Mm -hmm. moral like he doesn't wake up every morning and think like workers controlling the means product this is unethical he probably doesn't think about this mm-hmm. but it's his job to control the workers underneath him it's his job to keep them on a leash essentially he's told to do that so he does it and whether or not like i said with regards to consequentialism the moral virtue is irrelevant to me only the outcomes of your actions and i think i mean i just i think letting giants walk amongst an otherwise even playing field leaves footsteps in their wake that crush others i don't think it's really possible for people to have that much power without it implicitly harming others even through their lack of participation one thing that really bugs me cities will throw up bidding wars to try to get corporations to work with them. Mm -hmm. Now, there's something very strange to me about a city with millions of people in it putting up their tax dollars paid by people like me on the line to try and get a corporation to set up shop there. Sometimes they'll even build these stadiums for free just so they can get like, uh, you know, these sports teams to play there. And this is millions and millions of dollars of taxpayer money. Even if the corporations aren't doing anything wrong, they're just deciding to settle in a city, they leave devastation is a dramatic word. They leave consequences in their wake, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that I'm uh, just just sort of reflecting on is you, what you are advocating to a lot of people who haven't thought about this is correctly going to be understood as limitations on the freedom of, for instance, you know, corporations to make cities bid and limitations on current freedoms that exist in the capitalist society. I think what you're saying, though, is that the history of moral evolution and of government is actually the imposition of limitations on freedom such that more people experience more freedom to like not starve to death and to exactly yeah have Th- this is positive support. versus negative freedom mm-hmm. you know when when the when the government makes it illegal to murder others and that is by by the way not something that has always been the case in human civilization sure. we are technically having a freedom removed from us i mm-hmm. can no longer murder somebody without agents of the state coming to seize me but we are increasing the total freedom of the society because now people need not fear murder at least not as much. You get this with most laws. There are plenty of laws that enhance human freedom. And this is, it's funny that you say this, by the way. Have you ever heard the term dictatorship of the proletariat? Yeah. Terrible name, terrible (laughs) optics. Great idea. It advocates for essentially what you said earlier. A dictatorship of the proletariat, it doesn't mean authoritarianism. It just means that the only people who get to participate in the governmental processes of a society are the people who are materially affected by those policies. So if you are ultra wealthy or a business owner or some kind of plutocrat or an otherwise 
removed from the struggle of the common man. You don't get to vote. You don't get to run for office. It's essentially a system where, and you can hang up your coat if you want to. If you want to stop being a business owner, you can. It's that simple. But it's a system where only the people affected by the government actually get to have a say in it. Because let's be real, billionaires aren't affected by the daily passage of laws in the same way that poor people are. They aren't affected by police or by, uh, you know, it's it's like that old saying. Um, well, you're going to have a wealth. <laughs> oh, sorry. You're going to have a tough time passing um, taxes on the rich. Yeah. Because like yeah, California, you California is talking about a tax rate that only affects people who make a million or more. But by this rule, only people who make a million or more would get to vote on if it became a law or not. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because they're the only people oh, so affected I mean, if by they, it. I mean, if you want to get a long edge case, back in those days, you know, um, it was more meant as like an exercise in the idea that restricting the freedom of some can actually be beneficial to society's total freedom. We no longer allow, for example, um, people to freely occupy castles and become warlords of surrounding provinces. We got rid of feudalism. People can't do that anymore. You're not allowed to. But I can imagine some snivel-nosed advocate of feudalism back in the 16th century saying that where the government is you know, trying to remove the freedom of the nobility to pursue their God-given goal of subjugating the serfs, you know? People did make that argument back 400 years ago. Those, there were conservatives during the Enlightenment who argued against all of those things, democracy, free education. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm no, totally No, no, no. You're making... No, it's it, all very complicated. No, I, I, I think broadly, and there's areas where I don't for, for those listening, but what I consider to be uh, the most interesting and compelling parts of this is one, we're not at the end of history. It, it is strange for me that people treat capitalism like the end all be all. And they say, yeah, the best we have yet, which is true. And it's been true at every moment in history of every government that has ever existed. It has always been the best that we had up until then. Uh, what we should hope for is to move beyond it, hopefully bloodlessly, <laughs> uh, not not in a revolutionary fashion, in my opinion. Maybe some people think that the revolution is net uh, positive, I guess, in terms of human suffering. Uh, and then well, the, the other, those people just think that they're on the low side of the revolution. Sure. Like sure. I think if mm -hmm. Americans thought the revolution was going to be people who make a dollar a day coming in from other countries <laughs> and killing all Americans, then no one would want the revolution. Sure. The sure. only people that want it have framed the world such that they are the impoverished mm -hmm. without looking to all the people who are far poorer than them. Yeah. You know no, what I mean? I think there's a problem of uh, looking. We got some third worldists here <laughs> in, this, uh, in this podcast. You just described the whole ideology, basically. Yes. Oh, wow. Look at me. So, so, so we've got that thing, which, which I very much agree with, that, um, that this is the, the, the movement of history is generally in this direction, and it's generally a good thing. Justin, by the way, something just popped up on the computer. I don't want it to mess up our stream. Do you see that? What does it say? All good? It's not about memory. <laughs> we lost a podcast once because we ran out of memory halfway through. And it's I the NSA. They heard a revolution. <laughs> they checked out from the... Uh, um, the feed. But yeah, so history history is not at its end. One, it's I feel like so often we can argue about semantics. You know, America is a democracy. America clearly has socialist elements. It clearly has plutocratic elements. It's got all of these different things. And when people argue that it is capitalist or it is socialist, it is so, to me, obviously a medley of all of these things, some of which work in some ways and some of which don't. It seems only obvious that you can experiment in different directions. And that would be my third thing is I'm open to all of this as an experiment, small scale see how it goes. If it is true, and I believe you, that your intent is to not screw people or crucify the rich and to generally raise the well-being of people, then these should be experiments that we can agree upon generally if it was a good or a bad outcome. You know, if we start having more worker cooperatives and people live happier, healthy lives, but there's no billionaires, sign me up. You know, I'm, I'm 
I'm on board for that. I want to see that more than anything else. That's one of the beautiful things about our um, the fact that we have states, by the way. It's that even if there's a policy that looks like it might be good on a national level, an individual state can implement it, and we can get kind of like a, you know, is this working? Is this not? What are the consequences? We did that with marijuana uh, legalization. We did that with gay marriage. There were a lot of these like big national trends right off the back of individual, usually progressive states that are making these changes as well. Hmm. Um, and I would love to see something like that. One of the big problems, though, is that we're Americans. We don't actually take good ideas. Um, for example, like the social democracies in Europe some of the way their systems work are just objectively superior to ours, as in they produce better outcomes and they cost less money to upkeep, you know, um, whether we're talking healthcare or transportation. These arguments are like, arguments against the implementation of these systems are basically indefensible. We still don't do it, though, because we get into these big culture war arguments and the, the Republicans will say like, oh, you know, the, the socialists, they want big government. They're going to steal away the babies from your wombs and raise them as part of a dystopic Karl Marx strike force to kill you when you're an adult. And the Democrats will usually... Well, they're not exactly our allies, are they? The Democrats will usually say, you know, the budgetary concerns have limited our ability to meaningfully advocate for such. I just... I wish we were better at taking good ideas because you're right. We're not at the end of history. We're not even close to the end of history. We're actually in the mid, the, the, the midpoint of the biggest technological surge in all of human history. Never before has there even been anything close to the rapid social changes we're experiencing right now. And in spite of that, we hold on to these old world values. It's very regressive of us in a lot of ways. Like the fact, for example, this is just one off the top of my head, the fact that we have like office culture where you go to work and you work eight hours. Nobody works eight hours in an office. No human being does this. Mm -hmm. They work two hours and they spend the next six hours <laughs> trying tell to them. find ways <laughs> to convince their boss that they're still working the remaining six hours. Nobody gets to be honest about this process. If somebody says, I worked my two hours, I'm literally done with work, can I go home? They'll either have more work foisted on them or the boss will literally ask them to just sit down and pretend for the mm -hmm. rest of the six hours. It is a puppet show. It is a child's game. Mm -hmm. But we hold on to this because we don't know of any other ways to get people people to do work. Now we have the pandemic, people are working from home. What are the consequences of this? What are the outcomes? We could look into this, there could be studies done, but nobody wants to take that first step because change is scary. And there are a lot of people with a lot of money invested the way things are expected to work now, you know? Yep. Yes, I uh, very much agree. I actually even think it's uh, more the first one. I actually think it's more change is scary because you would figure if you could just outvote, you know, by the number of people that would benefit from saying, hey, fuck it, I work two hours. I'm not going to sit here for your eight. I actually think that the bigger thing limiting people is that inability to conceive of a different world, even more than entrenched interests. But that's neither here nor there. I want to move to something that I think we- You're not wrong, by the way. Yeah. Like, not at all. I want to move um, to something that I think we disagree on now, which I think <laughs> will be fun. So consequentialism as regards uh, white fragility and these sorts of things. So mm -hmm. I believe that your view, and I don't want to mischaracterize it, is that if uh, policy outcomes have uh, favor one race in terms of material, you know, it's financially beneficial for white people as opposed to black people, then that policy is racist and perhaps by extension, the authors of that policy are racist. Is that accurate to say? What do you think regarding that? 
it definitely, oh, there's a lot of context there. So I don't actually care if anybody who does a thing is racist, of course. I just care about whether or not the policy itself is racist. There are policies which lead to implicit biases, mm -hmm. but because of the way our class structure is set up, almost every policy will. It's almost impossible to invoke a policy in this country that's not going to disproportionately affect one group of people over another. So is every policy bigoted? I don't know. There are some cases, like for example, with the North Carolina voter ID law, though, where it seems like you can infer a racist intent from the way the law was structured. And from that, I feel more comfortable arguing like this policy is racist, not just because it has racist outcomes, but because they intended, this was a deliberate attempt to bring about racial inequality. Did you have a specific, uh, did you have like a specific uh, like policy in mind? No, I mean, so again, it's, I, and I, I recognize this and I thought this might be the case that you have at least two different personas. You've got your conversational talking mm -hmm. Bosch, like very thoughtful persona. And then you've got your, um, Twitch destroyer, you know, like like engage people on the internet, be edgy in order to bring people in and play the foil of other conservatives who are attracting young people by being extreme. And so when I've listened Inside to someone- Inside me, I have two wolves. You know <laughs> which do you feed? And so I've heard you say things, which I actually don't think you need to even defend or not, only if you well, I, truly deeply believe them, but you know, Republi all Republicans are racist or at least they don't care. I actually did want, <laughs> like, I, I, like, I did want to ask about this because I, uh, I was genuinely curious because I have seen, I watched a um, fair amount of videos to like prepare for this just mm -hmm. to get a sense for who you were. Well, I hope, and, hope they uh, were fun enough. <laughs> Well, I saw something and I was I was genuinely curious if it was something you meant or something you said facetiously because you feel like you're part of a culture war and you see Ben Shapiro destroys videos uh, bringing people over to uh, a more conservative view than you like. And so you feel like it's your duty to destroy. Uh, and the quote was, if you identify as a conservative, you are racist or at least you're OK with racism. And mm -hmm. when you say things like that, do you mean that or do you feel like it is your job as a provocateur to rile people up to try to further the progressive, I don't know, win? I do like riling people up, but no, I do believe that. It really, though, the, with one clarification, though, again, with regards to consequentialism, when I say a person is racist, what I actually mean is a person is an animus for racial or for, for racial bias. So I don't actually care individually what's going on in a person's head, only what the outcomes of their actions are. But yeah, I think that in order to be a Republican, you have to, at the very least, be okay with racism. I think that, so... A lot of people, when they hear that, they think of like a, a like a moral heinousness that I'm sort of ascribing to the average Republican, which I don't actually believe. There are lots of Republicans. I know this because they're in my family who are very nice people and who don't have any like weird thoughts about black people or whatever. They're not racially biased on an individual level. And frankly, if I were to try to explain to them how I felt Donald Trump's policies were racist, they would look at me dumbfounded because they, they haven't thought about it to the point where they see like into the sort of underlying construction of how these policies are formed. But whether they know it or not, whether they're aware or not, whether they're personally involved or not, they voted for the guy. It happened. So as far as I'm concerned, I mean, what really is the difference in terms of like the consequences for this country between like an actively racist Trump voter and somebody who voted Trump because they thought the system needed a shakeup and nothing else? Well, I don't I think, know how much of a difference there I, is. I think it comes think down it, to consequentialism. Uh, well, can, I think, I, can I take this one? Because I, I do think this is where we, we, could, we could disagree about surface level things, but I think it, it's a consequentialist problem. So for instance, let's say Republicans are very for laissez-faire capitalism, don't interfere, keep the system the same as it is today. Uh, mm -hmm. Today, nationwide, gay men make 10% more 
than their heterosexual counterparts for whatever reason. Yeah, it's fucked up. They're taking <laughs> yeah. all the... By, by this sort of consequentialist logic, Republicans who want to maintain that system are homophilic. They love gay people and they dislike heterosexual people because they're supporting a system which has disadvantaged heterosexual men of comparable age and all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So I, that's where I think, and if you want to take no, this no, at this I'll, point, go ahead. to me that's where our disagreement starts is that I don't think consequentialism is enough of a philosophical base to start to evaluate policy. I think that you have to add, um, I think intention needs to be included in there somewhere, uh, an ex expectation, et cetera. Go ahead. Or, or justification. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, advocacy for more money going to schooling is also a misandristic set of policies mm -hmm. because women overperform in schooling. Sure. But you could argue that that's legitimate because the reasons that women overperform are exigent to the way in which that system functions with regards to funding increases. So can you, can you define now, exigent? So I, I can actually I can take your argument here. I can agree with a part of it. There are policies which impose a racial bias which i don't actually consider racist mm -hmm. for example um oh, what's what's a good example what's the most pointed example that i can think of the 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 um implementation of um of like um oh god how do i i'm trying to think of a really really pointed example here okay here's an easy enough one all right with regards to um uh, um, public transportation okay so uh in my home city in los angeles public transportation is terrible but it's also a highly politicized issue because there are people in wealthy areas. Oh, dude, I live in Santa Monica. I know this oh, issue. Well, there you go. <laughs> having, having fun on the uh, 405 now that uh, COVID <laughs> has less people out there for work? No, I mean, what were I talked to people who were here when this when the subway stop was or not the train stop was set up and they describe mm -hmm. exactly the, the nobody wanted it because it had the predictable outcome of more homeless people coming into Santa Monica, staying here and affecting the daily experience of walking in the streets. So I know exactly that. Exactly. And what a what a picture perfect expression of class antagonism that mm -hmm. is. Um, now, naturally, the decision for like where to place these metro stops is racialized to an extent. Mm -hmm. If you place it in one neighborhood versus another, that can lead to very different groups of people having access to transportation. But I think it's entirely possible to lay down these lines, these metro, literally these metro lines, without there being an underlying racial animus, even if the outcome is highly racially biased. And the reason for that- So sorry to is pause. Because, when you say underlying mm -hmm. racial animus, do you mean intent-wise? Or like, this is where I where I get confused at, at the consequentialism meeting. Yeah, sure, without, without any underlying intent. Okay. Without any underlying intent and without any, um, without any like belief or knowledge whatsoever that you're affecting a kind of racialized outcome. Mm -hmm. um, even though the outcome could be very racially biased, I think it's possible that the implementation of that railway and the people who were a part of that decision-making, that they aren't like part of a racist system or that they aren't complicit in racist participation in that system. And I think the reason for that is because some systems are racially biased because of other systems, whereas some systems are racially biased because they on their own bring about negative racialized outcomes. Mm -hmm. The building of a new prison in a given town will lead to changes in how criminal justice is handled there. We do need prisons. I mean, you can't not have prisons. It just really depends on where they are and what their policies are. But putting more money towards a police force in a given town, depending on how that's handled, that could end up having some really severe consequences for how like the, the racial politics in that town play out. I think it's really tough to answer these questions hmm. directly. If you believe consequentialism is an inadequate framework for addressing like what is or isn't moral, then I think 
it would ultimately come down to reducing everything to the raw utility that you get from a given policy without consideration for the intent or the implicit bias behind it. But if you do that, you miss out on a lot of really interesting analysis. Yeah. I don't know if there's a hard answer for this. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess what I'm advocating for with regard to consequentialism is not the removal of it. In fact, I think outcomes are very important, but you just get a lot of weird scenarios where like if I walk outside wearing a bright red shirt, somebody looks at me rubbernecks and then piles up and kills eight people. Like I killed eight... I think there's some sort of the system of me wearing a red shirt that's really bright is now dangerous. Um, well, depending on how deterministic you are, you were as complicit in the murder of those eight people as the guy was driving. But, exactly, but obviously exactly. no consequentialist would ever advocate for policies being done along those lines. You got know, it. it's, it, so it, that it's, it's not pure consequentialism. It can't be, right? There's got to be well, some added factor that that is not that is implicit, not being stated, that is getting factored into that, which is red shirts don't kill people. You then know? you have the higher order, right? Mm -hmm. The higher order would be that from a consequential perspective, you don't want to establish legal precedents which discourage people from wearing red shirts outside, but you do want to establish legal precedents which discourage people from rubbernecking. So at a higher level, mm -hmm. is outside the individual actions but, that take place, you can make the argument that it's necessary to disincentivize one agent, even if both of them were critical to whatever negative thing took place. Exactly. And what determines whether, like, why not tell people not to wear red shirts? It's because there's something that's going on in your head that realizes that that can't be the foundational intent-based causal thing. Like, you go, whose fault is it? Well, you're supposed to be looking at the road, and you're allowed to wear a red shirt. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's some understanding of, uh, I, I guess... We have officially surpassed my uh, my my intro knowledge sure. to, um, okay. <laughs> uh, to to um, ethical normative sure. uh, philosophy. Sure. Or what's what's the term? Yeah. Eth um, or, or I forget. I even forget the term for it. Yeah. I don't know. These are complicated questions. Got it. So I guess Ben, I know you want to hop in here, but this would my I don't know if it's even a goal, but I guess the what I would be pointing at to with the deficiency of consequentialism to describe things is that I think that also needs to be applied to policies and it needs to be applied to conservatives, which is to say, look, even if someone does support an outcome that has racially unequal out results, it does not therefore make them a racist because the what you would need in order to have that line of logic is a pure consequentialism that I don't think is sufficient to describe. Oh, and make them a supporter of racism in the plainest terms, no? It would if, just be, it would be critical to distinguish between an active and a passive supporter of racism, somebody who does so intentionally and somebody who does so unintentionally. If you really want to get into it, by being an American and participating in our economy, I'm an implicit supporter of imperialism. Even though actively I denounce imperialism in all its forms, implicitly by buying the clothes that I buy, by eating what I eat, by wearing what I wear, I know the harm that I do to the planet and I know what I support. I know where my taxes go. So you can make an argument that I'm an implicit supporter of imperialism. And if you were some third world terrorist cell planning some American city to strike, you know, they could make the argument, it doesn't matter. There are no civilians. They're all implicit supporters of imperialism. It really depends on where you draw that line. That's why I really don't want to encourage that kind of thinking because I don't want third world terrorist cells using the same logic that we're sort of describing to to paint Republicans under one brush to say every American is a supporter of drone strikes because they operate in a system and haven't voted anti-drone strike with their presidential vote. They didn't vote libertarian or something. So that that well, I'm, then you'd have to determine consequentially whether or not actions like that would be beneficial in removing America's threat as an imperialist world power. Right? I'm, I'm not a consequentialist, though, so I would. So I, I would say that we, <laughs> <laughs> this is the difference. So I, I don't want us to get too. um 
locked into headiness here. But I guess, yeah, the way that you use the word racism and the way that I understand the word racism, I, I think comes down to this difference of consequentialist outcomes versus other things being wrapped, baked into that cake, whether that's intent or um, it's being weighed against some other factors or something like that. And so well, go ahead. the intent does matter to me, because even if I made the argument that all Republicans are supporters of racism, I would never make that into an argument about how it's OK to, like, drive a Mack truck into a MAGA rally or something like that. Well, my argument think... would only be that there is an. Imp- hmm? No, go ahead. I don't want to. I, don't I apologize. We, we've we've kept we've been back and forth <laughs> for so long. But I, I just I just want to say that the, the the goal of statements like all Republicans are supporters of racism is partially to be um, a shit stirrer. Obviously, I choose my language to at least in part to that end. But I do believe it because of the sort of underlying way in which voting for Donald Trump has furthered racial animus in this country. But the solution to that, in my mind, isn't to be highly reductive in all the different types of racial bias to just flatten them down into you're a racist. There's a huge difference between like the casually racist uncle and like the neo-Nazi. Well, a lot of people forget I, that. I think there's a difference between the casually racist uncle and a person who votes Republican. And this is kind of what I was saying is you, you asked, what's the difference if I bucket Republicans like this or not? And I actually think it hurts your ability to engage them because on a fundamental level, you do believe that they are the racist uncle at the table instead of thinking, what if they don't think that their policies are racist? They just straight up don't think that consequentialism makes sense. They think intent is what matters. And so therefore, you've lost the ability to engage them. I, I really think it actually minimizes your ability to persuade someone who identifies as Republican that your progressive ideas are good because you are starting from assuming that they are racist. So I actually think it has a huge impact on your ability to be persuasive. Sure. Well, what I, if you I, took it back 50 years, though? What, not, what if we let's just talk let's just talk today so th- i think the other thing that's important to recognize mm-hmm. is uh people especially if you aren't a consequentialist can have a million reasons for being a republican and i think to minimize every republican and say that they're tacitly supporters of racism you would have to accept that every progressive to a republican tacitly agrees that it is okay to murder babies and so now you have a people who think that all of these people are racist and all these people think that all of these people are proponents of murdering babies. Well, you I would agree lost... that every progressive is a tacit supporter of abortion, though, or of abortion well, that... rights at the very least. And what I'm saying is if you call it murdering babies, you lose the ability to dialogue. If everybody adopted your mindset, then there would be no way for these racists and these baby murderers to make progress together. But if progressive people can say not all Republicans are racists, they're not all my racist uncle. And Republicans can go, not all progressives want to murder babies. They just have a different definition of what it is to murder and what it is to be alive. Now these people can come together and talk and they can move society forward. So I actually think it's a huge difference. We're conflating two arguments here, though. So progressives in this country are implicitly supporters of abortion rights. If a Republican is to make break bread with us, to have a conversation with us, they'll have to eventually reconcile with that fact. That wouldn't be an inaccurate statement. The difference there being, are we arguing about which types of statements facilitate the best conversations? Or are we talking about which statements are the most accurate? Because I'll defend the is okay with racism statement. And I'll defend the is okay with abortion rights statement as well. But if your argument is that 
setting these to the side is important for discourse, I would agree with you, which is why when I talk, of course, with conservative people, I don't open with those lines. But I do still think they're accurate, and I wouldn't want to be dishonest when speaking with my audience. So if what I'm if asked, I'm, do I think all Republicans are racist? I do have to adhere to what I believe is true. And What if, if I'm back, a black Republican hmm? with a black wife that has hmm? chosen to live in a predominantly black neighborhood? You're going to tell me that I'm racist because I voted for George Bush? Well, if you were a Republican, then certainly I would. I mean, if I was trying to have a conversation with <laughs> no, you, no, I so would. How, so walk me through this. I feel like we are. Mm -hmm. that, what I'm seeing walk, here is walk. that when you say racist, you mean one thing. And when you say racist, you mean I'm, a very different thing. How, how could I possibly be a racist when I am black? Have chosen well, to are, marry a black woman. There are black racists. Sure, I mean, sure. Yeah, Let's, yeah, yes, yeah, there are black racists. Uh, what's his name? Clayton Bigsby. What I'm Bigsby? saying, what's what his I'm name? saying is that there are <laughs> Republican non-racists. Not that there aren't Republican well, racists. I mean, of it course depends, there are. depends on your definition of racism. Yes, I think that me, is, I don't think so. In my opinion, especially today, I don't think there's a good reason to be a Democrat or a Republican. I apologize. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is a good reason. I don't think there's any element of the Republican Party that meaningfully benefits the lives of any person who's voting Republican. Well, what if unless I were you're born, very, very wealthy? What if I were huh? born into a religious family? I think that abortion is the murder of an innocent baby. And that issue is such so important to me that I will take a lifestyle hit. I will literally vote not in my own best interests, just because I want to stop the mass murder of babies. Well, then I would, then you would reason. be an anti-abortion rights advocate, in which case it would be another form of bigotry that you would be. But so her, uh, no, no, be no, but all I'm saying is, wait, wait, I'm so confused. So no, no, what no, can you, all I'm saying is you said there's no good reason to vote Republican. And I'm just saying, mm -hmm. try to have empathy for someone who has different views than you. Well, wait, wait, so, wait, hold on. I have so, to have, wait, wait, wait. But this is a critical distinction, though, sure. because I'm OK with. So when it comes to like talking with people I disagree with, I do this all the time on my channel. I don't think that the strategies that you would use to discuss like broader political forces and the strategies you would use to individually try to move people over are very, very different. I talk differently with different groups of people. Mm -hmm. I never lie. But obviously, like I'm going to try to if I'm like it's the same way. I'm saying, if I was talking person, with like a pastor huh? to that person, that is a good reason to vote Republican. Well, but if I accept, yeah, but then there are people who are like, I think that blacks and whites shouldn't marry. So to them, that's a good reason to vote Republican. No, we can't. I, I can't accept other people's moral premises. If well, I do no, there's that, there's no Republican I let myself... policy that's against mixed marriage. So that's well, not. There, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're getting, not we're getting, now. we're getting pulled into the weeds. I think, I think we can zoom out and and. Uh, you you're making two points and Bosch's rights point out that you're making two points. One is that it's an ineffective way, which he's conceded. And I think that's true um, Two, And now what he is saying is that it is a fundamental truth external to me that uh, Republicans are racist. And that has nothing to do with my perspective. Right. <laughs> that is that is a truth out there in the world. Or that, OK saying, with and racism. I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying it seems really weird to say that a black person who chose to marry another black person who chose to live in a predominantly black neighborhood, who voted for Donald Trump because they like his policies, to call them racist seems strange to me. It seems well, like a mislabel. So, wait, but I want to take this point by point, if I may. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that being black or marrying a black person has anything to do with whether or not a person's racist, because there are a lot of there are plenty of misogynists who marry women, after all. I mean, you can mm -hmm. <laughs> you can marry people that you have weird underlying feelings about and you can be a group that you have weird underlying feelings. Sure, about. That's why I'm also saying uh, they've chosen to live in a predominantly black neighborhood. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but I mean, the same exactly the same with that. I mean, you all of these things, while arguments against the probabilistic likelihood of a person being a racist, aren't arguments that they can't be a what racist. if that same person donates to black charities to charities that well, help disenfranchise black people like that would be a very strong argument against the likelihood of them being racist there, yeah there but must you can, be I mean, there you must can run be down some the, set of facts that i can give you <laughs>
Where you would say that person voted Republican and is not racist, right? Surely there must be a fact set that does that. You realize the argument you're making right now is that if you do a certain amount of non or anti-racism, you compensate for the implicit racism. No, 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 no. He's 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 rejecting your notion that you are you you're starting from the premise that being a Republican is racist. That's just a God given fact. Well, yeah. And Ben is trying to give examples of what wouldn't be that. Like. We, we have to be clear, like the Republican Party, not just with Donald Trump, but right now in the modern era, the Republican Party is absolutely a vehicle for white supremacy. So like, this is where I think we disagree, but go, please continue. Right, right. Like, for, especially for the past, for the Donald Trump administration, it's gotten worse with time. You have very obvious instances of this party openly allying with white supremacy from Donald Trump's when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply comments on Charlottesville to the fact that Stephen Miller was uh, is one of um, uh, Donald Trump's top speechwriters and uh, like immigration policy experts to the fact that Tucker Carlson had a white supremacist neo-Nazi writing for him for four years. But and he you, only got thrown out when you he was voted outed. For, if you voted for Biden and then it comes out that Biden's a pedophile, you're not you're not a pedophile or no, no but I, this is this is going to mix up the points because because now he's well, no, going to say that you can't say it just, happened after the fact and <laughs> well, well no, no but, but even if it, well, whether or not it happened after the fact the fact of the matter is that like the racial animus of the republican party is open it's out in the air it's not like a secret thing that gets leaked it's a thing that's there and open now some people don't agree some people yes. will say that all the comments about the wall and immigration and all the collaboration with white supremacy and all the weird comments donald trump has made about black and brown people and all of it all of it, that all of it is just it's normal or fine or it's weird but it's not necessarily racist and the problem is if we allow them those interpretations if we allow and we say like oh well it's up to your interpretation it's a matter of opinion you can let almost anything fly and that's what I ultimately have to stand against. In my mind right now, the threat of this country going under because people are a little overzealous in calling out racism is negligible. Mm-hmm. Whereas the likelihood of this country going under because we have rabid white supremacists who are getting away with everything they can, destroying the functionality of our government to the end of forgetting a far-right fascist government, that is infinitely more likely. So obviously, this does come down to a matter of interpretation. There's no single objective framework to determine the threshold by which a person is culpable for the support of a system. That type of like moral consequentialism or even ethical philosophy, that's very, very, very difficult to parse. But right now, when we're leaving in the wake of an administration that is like allying with cultists and conspiracists whose rhetoric aligns with those of the Nazis, it's very difficult for me to look at that and think any modern Republican today is not at least a little bit okay with what's going on. Mm-hmm. 
And even if they don't see that as a racial thing, there were, and I hate to bring up Godwin's law, there were a lot of Germans back in the 1930s whose animus towards the Jewish population was not in their mind a matter of anti-Semitism, but rather a matter of removing the privileged class of bankers and usurers who had been bleeding Germany dry after the end of World War I. Mm -hmm. And many of these people personally were not anti-Semitic. In fact, a lot of them had anti-Semitic neighbors and then didn't a couple of years later. They were fine and dandy with Jews, but the systems they fed into, the lies they were told and the lies they bought led to the outcomes that I could have predicted, or I guess that socialists at the time predicted before they were killed too, would have happened anyway. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, what are you willing to gamble on? The risk of calling people who don't think they're racist, racist, or the risk of a racist government being allowed to get away with what it does without being called out for its crimes. So I don't think that's that, not. Well, I, but I don't an think easy you question have, I, to I think, answer. I, I'm sorry for rambling. Yeah, yeah, you're no, good. No, no, My no, apologies. I well, I think you can do both though. You can call out a racist government without calling every Republican racist. You can say that some well, Republicans are racist. There's, there's so many. Saying all Republicans. Yes, there's so many. I'm, I'm listening to, to disagreements, and I, I side with Ben, but I'm trying to, to see the meta disagreement that is occurring here. I think one foundational piece, and there are many, uh, mm -hmm. is that. You're presuming that people are operating from the same fact set as you, which I think is a large presumption. Uh, and I think one of the big problems is that like everything that you know that you just said about our country with aligning with conspiracists and what Donald Trump said about Charlottesville, that is obviously being filtered through uh, headlines and news things and, and outlets that you read, et cetera. And you are not reading and seeing and seeing, you know, other things that other people are reading. Uh, I was not there when Donald Trump said. So what I what I try to recognize is that especially nowadays with so many different channels, people are operating from two very different fact sets about who Donald Trump is, who the Republican Party is, who the Democrats are. Do you see that as contributing to why somebody might not think that even though it's so obvious to you that Republicans are racist, that they might not think that. Yeah, they of might course, have we live in two completely different realities, but that also would apply to the Nazi Republic. 100%. The information they were fed was not in any, they were, I mean, most of the population back then was okay with the crimes of the Nazi party, not because they were all virulent, genetically terrible people. Mm -hmm. They were fed information that necessarily led to the conclusions the Nazi party wanted them to believe in. And like yes. being a Republican is a lot easier if you genuinely do believe that Antifa and BLM are going to burn down your suburban houses, if you genuinely do believe that MS-13 is going to break through the border and start a rape campaign all the way up to like mm -hmm. Michigan, you know, um, it's easier to be a Republican given those facts. But if, if, I mean, what we're essentially saying there is that you can't call people racist if they believe racist things because they were tricked into believing them by racists. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying <laughs> no. that that racism, uh, well, one, so there's, there's a couple things. I'm saying that mm -hmm. racism as a matter of consequence, again, if I walk out in a red shirt and a black man gets in an accident, like I'm not a racist <laughs> because the consequences of my actions have directly led to some guy rubbernecking and killing himself. I'm saying there's a foundational disagreement with consequentialism, which I'm trying to move past. But the second piece of disagreement is you keep assuming that the Republicans are the Nazis because they're getting fed the propaganda. And what I'm just trying to open the, the possibility is that whoever is consuming the propaganda is convinced that they're not. And so the certainty with which you believe the things you believe is not an inoculation or insurance against being wrong, if that makes any sense. And so that, that you are, um, I guess... Well Do you suited. think there's any utility in in pointing out that like it's racist to support a given party? Uh, I well utility. That's I don't know. If so, I'm sorry. Do you think sorry? Do you think there's like a benefit in making those broad categorical arguments? I think there's a cost. I, I think it's 
if I were to view this from a utilitarian lens, I would say it's damaging. There might no, I could I could see a world where it's very positive. So I'll give you an, an example. Let's let's say that for instance, let's say that there I can give you an art. Like let's say that there actually isn't racism in the Republican Party in this fantasy world that I'm concocting. This is a fake mm-hmm. world. Call them the R's. They don't have to be the Republicans. So, right? No, that's no, fine. I can, <laughs> I can contend with the moral the, the moral reality of a non-racist Republican sure. Party. All right, anyway, let, yeah. let's say that they exist, but let's say that their policies are wrong in other ways that hurt people. And let's say that you can convince people to move away from the R's by by saying that they're racist, even though they're not. In that world where they are not racist, you could still be utilitarian to say that they are, thus getting people to move to the other party, and thus creating more welfare for all. So like, there certainly could be utility to it. Do I think that there is? It depends on your aims, I suppose. And you'd set a precedent where it's okay to lie to convince somebody to do what you well, think Well, not best. lie. You guys are using different definitions. No, no, you, said, you said lie. Yeah, sorry, sorry, lie. in this world. In this I, world, so you're yeah. saying it's okay to lie because even though they're not racist, you're getting them to switch over. But now mm-hmm. what you've opened up is you've given them permission to lie to get people to switch over to their party as well. <laughs> so now you've created a situation where anyone who thinks there's utility in lying can lie to their populace. Well, we're, we're half describing politics as well, right? Because realistically, sure. any political party is going to lie about any other political party because they want to capture the greatest amount of votes possible. Yes. That's and not I, necessarily and saying, a reciprocative permission thing. That's just a thing that they do and have been doing forever. Yes. And I think we would be better off if people like us and people like you were to not do that. Well, sure. I don't lie. I mean, or at least I certainly try not to. Mm-hmm. I've certainly said things that were incorrect, but I try to correct myself after the fact if I can. Sure, sure. So I'm, but I'm, so that's my counter argument to the. Sure. Sure. Uh, so utilitarian justification. So I don't want to I, I have lost my bearings right now. So let me just ask you to go back to sort of the root of this and then we'll try to maybe move to something else is when you mm-hmm. say racism, correct me if I'm wrong in my understanding. Racism as a system is when you support. Uh, it, it can be it doesn't have to be when you support a group or a political unit that uh, has outcomes that disadvantage a certain race that that yeah, would that- qualify for racism. Yeah, I would say like any racist is a person who participates in a system or contributes to a system of of um, of racial inequality. Got it. So and again, like is every American who votes in an American election racist because there's more Asian people in China and we're not voting to give our money to China? Does that? Well, I don't I don't think I don't think anyone expects the United States of America to have to distribute affirmative action money across like the entire globe. What we're mostly talking about is what are the expectations? Well, because I think if you're voting in a country, you expect the country to be reciprocal to the interests of the people within that country. Well, if you're again, though, I think this breaks down. If you're voting, you would you would assume that it's again, it's not about interest, the, the affirmative action thing. It's about who who they feel deserves that money. But we, we're, we're past that with the consequentialism argument, because what we're saying is if it has an unequal outcome by race. That no, is whoa, racist. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I may have misrepresented here. So in a nation, I think that it's expected that the nation represent the interests of those who vote in that nation. This is a part of democracy. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it would be fair if like every country that isn't China gave all their money to China because China has the biggest population or whatever. Mm -hmm. We vote in this country. We expect the country to do for it what it can its citizens. I think that's perfectly acceptable and a normative standard that I can get behind as a consequentialist. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about the internal mechanisms of this country, historically, All political parties have been racist political parties. If you go back 50 years, it's not like the Democrats and the Republicans were like, it's not like the Democrats were like super duper pro, you know, racial unity. There were plenty of racist Democrats. The Dixiecrats were a prominent political force until the 1980s. The party switch has left behind like a huge gap in its wake. Currently today, as far as I'm concerned, the Democratic Party is still a racist party. 
I still support that line of reasoning. Um, so however, does that make every Democrat? Well, well, with the Democrats, do you think that they are anti-Asian because they want affirmative action laws, for instances, that would disadvantage Asian engineers in favor of, of black engineers? It would depend on the context there. There are a lot of different ways that um, affirmative action could take place. A lot of the anti-Asian affirmative action that takes place is usually in coastal cities where a large population of Asian Americans there are wealthy children of like wealthy um, folks back in China but who send their kids over so here for education. We're, we're adding like uh, other factors into the analysis of Democrats that I feel are being left out of the analysis of Republicans. Well, no, no, no. But you, you talked about affirmative action. So I'm mm -hmm. just saying there are a lot of ways that can pan out. Affirmative action by its nature is racially biased. I think that the best argument that can be made for it is that it assuages pre-existing biases to some extent. I think there are ways to do it well and ways to do it poorly. The biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action, by the way, are white women, not any other group of people. It's white women, by and large, who benefit from it across the country. So if there's any group to get mad at there, not that anyone needs an excuse to get mad at white women, but um, with that being said, well, I'm not, I'm think, not mad at anybody for trying to benefit from affirmative action. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing because people online don't like women yeah. very much. But um with regards to, um, no, I don't mind people taking advantage of the systems as they exist. With regards to like whether or not you're a racist for supporting X or Y though, there are like descending tiers of arguments you can make here where being an American inherently means you're a racist because you support the implicit mm -hmm. genocide of the Native American people sure. or whatever. And you can make it more specific too. You could say it's not all Republicans who are racist. Actually, it's QAnoners who are racist. And of course, QAnoners are almost always Republicans. So it's like a tier within a tier. But if we're talking about party support, and that's usually what I'm talking about. I don't argue with many QAnoners, but I've argued with plenty of Republicans. We're usually going down to the lines of which party is better, the Democrats or the Republicans. And to split that line, because you have to have a medium point, a focal point, to split that line there, uh, to me, it is inarguable that the Republican Party is the party which is more racist. But not just that they're more racist, but that a tremendous amount of their public outreach is mobilized around kowtowing to racist language and to pre-existing racial biases. And what I find when I argue with a lot of these Republicans is some of them are just virulent racists. You have those people. A lot of them aren't, but a lot of them have preconceptions about racial policies in this country mm -hmm. that are in, informed by white supremacy, even if they're not like personally hateful towards black people. For example, and he, by the way, I just... Would you say that a person is racist back in the 1960s if they didn't support Martin Luther King's civil rights movement? Uh, it would depend on why, is what I would say. If they, if they thought he was a serial cheater and they're like, I can't get behind that guy because I'm a Christian and that's like the worst thing one can do, even though I support Malcolm X or something, like it would, it would depend on, on the reasoning behind it. Sure. Well, let's say then like support the movement then. It would depend on what the movement meant. I think this is one of the issues with BLM is you, go, you support the movement, right? It's like, well, what what do you mean when you say support the movement? So I don't know a ton about um, what the issues were back in the day, but I, I could conceive of a world where someone would not support the movement, think they were doing it. I mean, like, didn't Malcolm X not support the way that he was doing it? <laughs> like well, Malcolm, Malcolm X was a part of the movement. He just didn't like the fact that Martin Luther King tried to kowtow so much. But Martin sure. Luther, I mean, Malcolm X changed his mind down the line. He became less um, separationist. I guess the but point is that it's conceivable. He, it's conceivable that somebody would not support that movement and not be racist. I think Malcolm but like, X not, not, okay, was so not racist, I, even if I he know, didn't like the movement. 
Yeah, like there are ways to not support the movement because you have specific concerns with its its, yep. its underlying motivations or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, like a person who just doesn't support it, not because of like the tactical concerns, but a person who just like you ask them, hey, how do you feel about MLK and the civil rights? And they're like, nah. Like it would mean, so, it would depend why I would have to f- ask further questions. That would be my so answer. The, right. But the subsequent question would be what reason is good enough that you think it's okay to deny black people first-class citizenship because of your pet reason? Well, they would say, for instance, and again, my, I think it's, there's a lot of um, implicit demeaning undercutting your pet reason. Like maybe to them, their reason, let's just pretend that this person is a, uh, they're a Bible preaching Catholic and they think that mm-hmm. the judgment day is coming. And if there's a preacher who cheats on his wife, that the world will not be saved. So in getting behind Martin Luther King and increasing his ability to cheat on his wife, despite the fact that he's a holy man, uh, is going to condemn all of society to burn in hellfire. I would find that to be for them incorrect because I'm not religious, but a sufficient reason that would not make me categorize them as racist, just wrong about Christianity. But then wouldn't that mean that it's impossible for any cultist or any conspiracy theorist to be racist or sexist or anything? No, because no, they no, would wait, always it, have a way of justifying. No, no. They, wait, 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 what if they wait, just wait, said they don't like black people? Then they'd be I, racist. Wait, I, I really have to hit on this, okay? I really have to hit on <laughs> sure. this. Because most historically, most racists, even back during the slave days, wouldn't say that they supported slavery because they didn't like black people. Sure. A lot of people back during the slave days supported slavery because they thought it was the natural order of the world. Yep. There's nothing implicitly racist about believing in a natural order of the world. Mm-hmm. But if it leads to you supporting slavery from like, not even just from a consequential perspective, just from like a pragmatic perspective, I think it's okay to refer to that person as racist. Sure. If a person is anti-civil rights movement because they have some like specific personal issue that isn't in line with the way that movement runs what they're essentially saying is that whatever their opinions on like racial equality they're not important enough to them that those would take priority over their personal issue and to me that would a racist make or or they might think that that it could have the opposite of the consequence they might think that that particular movement is going to set them back 20 years and there's a different you know like sure but that would be like a strategic Strategic concern sure. rather than like a problem with the aims of the movement itself. So this is know? why I think, and I'm glad we're doing this, uh, longer questions than do you support X are very important. Or longer answers are, are very important. So you'd said something um, that I wanted to go back to. Yes, I, where, let, me, let me tell you where I think that your intuition is, is dead on, is that you can't take people at their word. I think that's what you're saying. It's like, look, if you say you're not racist, but you go out every day and you whip your slaves 50 times and then you go into dinner and you pray to God and say all men are created equal, like at some point, consequentialism needs to step in and say, I don't give a damn what you profess. We have to look at the consequences of your actions. But I do think we cannot throw out entirely that. So what I'm looking for in someone's world word, let me go back, worldview, let me go back to that um, the person who didn't support MLK because for religious reasons. If mm-hmm. I find that they are like Westboro Baptist level committed in every facet of their life and they don't eat shellfish or mix meat with milk and they're like Bible literalists, I go, you know what? I don't know that they're racist. I think that they're wrongly Christian. But if I find them selectively enforcing their Christian beliefs and, oh, I don't support this yeah, because of Christianity, but they're, but they're cheating on every other aspect of the Bible, then I go, I think that's probably, and I'm, and I'm intuiting what's going on in their brain imperfectly. But what about, what about modern day neo-Nazis? Mm-hmm. The modern neo-Nazi line is that what's happening right now in the West is something called white replacement, mm-hmm. white genocide, where all of us, we're all white, I assume you both look pretty <laughs> white, where us folk, we're getting bred out because the Jews 
are using selective positions of power in media, finance, and in uh, politics to bring in more immigrants, brown, dark-skinned immigrants, and to promote more miscegenation in media, hmm. thus leading more white women to have sex with black men. Therefore, we get bred out, we become a minority, and the Jews' long civilizational war against the, uh, what do they call us? The What's the Jew term for not Jew? Uh, Gentile? Gentile, thank you, uh, against the Gentiles to be completed. Now, if you believe all of that, if you genuinely believe that the Jews are collectively working to destroy the white race. We are. I've been to the um, meetings. I got, so, I got bar mitzvah. I'll tell you. If you believe all of that, the, the follow-up points, yep. we need to commit to the extermination of the Jewish people to defend mm -hmm. ourselves or we need a separate white ethno state with no other ethnic groups so that we can practice our culture and marry in peace, actually follow fairly naturally. Yes. If you believe you're the product of a deliberate targeted genocide by like a conspiratorial group of ultra powerful Jews, those consequences necessarily follow. But that's the thing though, right? If you made a consequential argument with one of these neo-Nazi types and you were to say, well, I don't actually think you're racist or anti-Semitic because your beliefs necessarily follow from the things you yeah. believe. I feel like we lose our rhetorical ability to address the existence of racism at all. Mm -hmm. and, and eventually we have to say, you know what? I don't care about intent. I don't care about justification. I don't care about what comes out of your mouth. The only thing I care about is you want a white ethno state. You want to genocide <laughs> the Jews. Let's get to it. Okay. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. Sure. And that now that's a very hard line example. I'm talking about neo-Nazis though. I've argued with a lot of people who believe the thing that I just described, mm -hmm. but for a lot of Republicans, the underlying logic is pretty identical. For example, uh, Donald Trump fear-mongered uh, uh, all across 2020 about Black Lives Matter invading the suburbs, which is like a reflection of old language about the racialized inner city and the white suburbs. Nowadays, of course, the suburbs are more racially integrated, but it was so blatant that Biden called him out on it in one of the presidential debates. Donald Trump didn't even retort. It's an obvious dog whistle. And if one of the key well, selling points for your presidency is you reiterating the belief that the black hordes will invade the white civilized parts of your country, we've moved to a point now where like, regardless of what pre-existing beliefs have led you to think this necessary? We're dealing with old and powerful race war rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And if we can't call people who stand by that racist, I don't know if there's much of a meaning to the term. And at that point, I am reduced exclusively to discussing outcomes of policies without any mention of the moral worth of supporting or opposing any of those policies. And while that isn't a bad way to discuss policy, if I were a politician, I would never use a term like racist, for example. I would only ever talk about the outcomes of policy. As somebody who tries to argue online and talk to people online, removing that type of condemnation from my vocabulary in such obvious instances of its use is difficult, and I feel it's rhetorically damaging. Yeah. Well, I can be called a socialist, communist, uh, uh, fascist, transphobe, whatever. You can say anything about me, and well, often my critics do. But you think But if I can't call supporters of that a racist, I don't know. Like, what so, does the word mean then? So there's a lot. There's a lot here. So let me, I'm going to try to take it. I did say a lot. I apologize. <laughs> I'll try to take it in pieces. So that QAnon guy who believes that the Jews have it, I would say if when disabused of his belief that the Jews had the conspiracy, he immediately released the need to cleanse the ethno state. 
I would not actually call that person a racist. I would, and, and trying to step into their mind, I would go, this person's trying to save the fucking world. This is a goddamn hero who's very confused. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, what I would call that is wrong or ignorant and, or maybe right, maybe Ben knows, <laughs> you know? Um, but, and, and, and I think you could say like, look, this is gonna cause you to behave like a racist. You know what I mean? Like, this is gonna, this is gonna make you behave like people in 18, hundred that that tried to exterminate black people and like is that what you're aiming at um but so yeah so that this can be a semantic disagreement moving on to donald trump i think that again i i was not hugely involved in the election i watched the uh, debates to do a potential charisma breakdown on him but mm -hmm. your perspective of trump um having these constant dog whistles is not shared by me and i'm not claiming that's because he didn't do it I'm, I'm just trying to point out that where one consumes their news has a huge impact. And when I watched that debate, that moment that was apparently breezed by was a totally breezed by to me. Like that didn't stand out in any sort of meaningful way because I wasn't watching uh, and consuming news that told me who he was very often. And I, and I might miss the opportunity to understand him. That's a risk that I take. I just, you know, kind of sat this, this vote out. Um, I didn't vote for, for the record. Um, and then I believe, where do we close with this? With, with the importance of the semantic word. I guess where I come back to is that will create, you know, that is, you will behave like a racist is where I can get without, without, because I, I do think that intent needs to, needs to be there at some level. Yeah, I would just say if, if you, if, so I'm not, this isn't a condemnation, but mm -hmm. if you're at a point where you would feel uncomfortable calling a neo-Nazi a racist because there's a possibility they may disavow their conclusions if they were to be convinced the Jewish conspiracy theory isn't real, then you're operating on an entirely different wavelength than me. Sure. I don't know. Maybe your approach would be effective in directly speaking to them. I know what you both do after all. I'm familiar with your channel. I've watched mm -hmm. of your videos. Mm -hmm. So I know where your um, what your angle is. And I think that's perfectly agreeable. I don't know if calling a person to a racist to their face ever has any beneficial effect ever. Mm -hmm. um, but at that point, as far as I'm concerned, the term racist loses any descriptive power if we can't even apply it to such people. Sure. Especially since, like, in my opinion, nobody who's nobody who believes in the Jewish conspiracy theory has ever been moved off of it with evidence. Mm -hmm. It's usually something you arrive at post hoc after like other conclusions. And in that case, in that case where there was a complete inconsistency of like, wait a second, you don't, you know, you uh, got this Jewish friend and you've got all these other Jewish things. It's like, you don't actually believe that. So at some level, I, I definitely agree with you where I'm trying to step into their moral framework and see, is it consistent with what they're telling me? And I think what you are rightly suspicious of are people that feed you one justification but have a totally different unconscious set of beliefs which very well may be and i would i would be willing to take a risk in some cases to say what you have is a kernel of racial hate in you that is finding rational explanations and all of these other things but i know that those aren't what you really believe because you don't act as if there's a jewish conspiracy you only act as if you hate black people does that like oh yeah, yeah. And, and and if you could substantiate those mm -hmm. claims in a direct conversation i think that'd be mm -hmm. a blowout by the way I, well, I absolutely think that would my main and this is the last thing i'm going to say in this by the way because i i because it can get circular and sure. honestly <laughs> subjects like this are deserving of a very well invested conversation mm -hmm. but um the 
for me, one of my biggest worries is that we've given a lot of people a lot of tract to be bad things without allowing them to describe themselves as such. Mm -hmm. The internet is full of people who will call themselves moderates or centrists, but who I see repeating language I could see on Stormfront. The internet is full of people like that because, rightly so, a lot of conservatives have realized that if you call yourself a neo-Nazi or a white nationalist or whatever, people will instantly disregard what you have to say. So if you say you're a moderate centrist who's disillusioned with BLM after you got treated poorly at a protest for being white, and since then you simply think we need to curtail on a couple of immigration mm -hmm. policies, people will listen to you mm -hmm. and people will subscribe to you. And I just don't like it when we aren't willing to give name to phenomena, which are really common to the human experience. Mm -hmm. A lot of people treat racism like it's this magical ethical deformity. 40 years ago, the majority of the American population didn't think black and white people should vote. Most of the people who voted in that poll are still alive. This is not like an invisible phenomena. It's just a it's just a fact of the world. Misogyny and racism, not just from white people or men or whatever, just from all of us. These biases are really omnipresent. And I want to destigmatize their uh, invocation to an extent. Mm -hmm. I don't mean it as a great moral denunciation. I'm willing to admit, for example, that I have racial animus within me. I would be comfortable with somebody saying that I am in part racist because we are all raised in a society which imparts on us certain biases. I live in a white supremacist society. I'm going to adopt some of that. It's in my head. You just got to be aware of it. Try not to go crazy with it. You know, mm -hmm. to me, it's not this great moral condemnation. And I think this and is, if we could I, all yeah, address please. it that way, I think it'd be easier to weed it out. Mm -hmm. uh, so listen, I'm Jewish. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I'm sure a lot of neo-Nazis <laughs> are racist. Okay. If you look at my voting <laughs> history, excuse Democrat. So it'd be weird to call me a Republican, given that that's not where most of my voting goes. But I just think that to say that a Venezuelan person who moved here and decided to vote Republican because they have experienced socialism, meaning the death of a country and going, mm -hmm. I know why you voted for a Republican. You're racist. And then they tell you, no, that's not the case. Actually, if you look at my history, you'll never you literally never find an action that looks motivated by racism. But here's why I voted for it. It's because I think socialism is dangerous. And then you go. No, it's because you're racist. That just seems very strange to me. It seems like well, it could be, we, could be both, we could have be. to accept that there are Republican voters motivated by well, things other than racism. Well, I didn't like just say seems... racist. I said, well, 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 hold on. I think I'm being mischaracterized here. I've never said the only reason a person would vote Republican is racism. Just that if you vote Republican, you are at the very least okay with racism. Okay, no. You can have other motivations, but then you'd be saying like, yeah, I think that I vote a Republican to stop the advent of socialism in the United States. Okay. And I'm okay with racism as long as we also achieve that goal of mine. You know, what about if I say, and I don't think that the person that I voted for for Senate has racist policies just because they have an R next to their name? Well, then there would be one of the people who could support Mitch McConnell's like majority in the Senate, which means that they would continue to have a stranglehold over the ability for progressives to pass racial legislation in the country. Maybe I mean, it all, think, eventually it all boils down the to the racial, same power structure. Maybe they think that the progressive racial legislation. Isn't won't work. Good. Yeah, won't isn't work. going to solve racism. Has misunderstood I guess, uh, let, what racism let, is. Let's not keep. Let's not keep on this one. I think what Ben is trying to say is that uh, there, <laughs> and we're not going to get to an agreement that there are reasons uh, that someone could be completely not racist and vote Republican, and that could include not believing that progressive agendas to end racism that they say will end racism will end racism that they think it will make it worse. For instance, and you don't see like they think defund the police would be a bad idea. Or something like that. Sure. Yeah, that they think any 
at whatever it is, whatever the Green New Deal. I don't know. I don't. I'm not super big on policy. Right, right. They've looked into. No, let's just say they've looked into. To get specific, of course. What whoever it is they vote for, that they just vote because they watched the news three or four times and they tuned into one debate and didn't notice any racism in Donald Trump and then voted for Donald Trump. Sure. Well, if we're talking about people who vote off of such ignorance, they aren't even aware of what's going on. I'd be it'd be difficult for me to say that they have some kind of racial bias, if for no other reason than because they're barely even political actors. They mm-hmm. might as well have flipped the coin. Well, what and if decided they think defunding the police is is bad is worse for Black Americans than overfunding the police with better training? That's fine. I mean, Biden has advocated for funding the police more, so they mm-hmm. should vote for Biden then. Well, no, but this is what I'm saying. Like, you, like someone could have a perception of a policy that is racist, and someone could look at the exact same policy and think it's not racist. Well, we would have to look at the actual outcomes of the policy now. Well, this is again where we disagree. Well, again, it's tough. One, we yeah, don't. We, we don't. Could, <laughs> we could go in this circle. Yeah, forever, we're we're, right? we're going to loop de loop. We're going to loop de loop here. Um, conce- no, no, but I think the outcome. So the outcomes of the are unclear, and and that person might may or may not be a consequentialist. And- I think, <laughs> I think that despite the fact that the NBA has more than thirteen percent black people, it is a meritocracy. I don't think that it is a system based on racial bias in scouting. So when I look at the outcomes of the NBA demographics and they don't match the demographics of the general population of the US, I don't immediately assume that it's built on a racist system. Sure, and but I think I that's the difference. That. No, no, and and he's saying that that person would take that logic to the United States of America and you would disagree historically, but uh, there are premises well, upon which they would disagree. Well, but with here's you. the thing. Like if somebody's making the argument that the reason why there are so many more black people in prison is because they're more predisposed to committing crime, mm-hmm. eventually we're just running back to 18th century phrenology, you know, tropes about racial differences. Sure. A lot of people in America do believe that actually. I'd actually be willing to bet that like probably around a quarter or a third of Americans do believe that, even ones that wouldn't admit it. Because the underlying sociological arguments for why black people in prison are super complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually don't blame people for not really being familiar with the totality of the information there because like, I mean, that's an entire field of study. Criminology is like, it's, it, you can get degrees in this stuff. Um, but there are still arguments being made about it, no? And if a person actually did believe that black people were genetically predisposed to commit crime, I think that would be a pretty racist belief, no? Mm-hmm. Well, again, it depends on the world that we live in. And I mean this having not looked into it or not having an opinion on this, but like, let's say that we live in a world where that was the case and it came through. I'm not saying we do. Like, that would then not be racist. What racism is in my definition, and I, and I will try to explain clearly what I mean, is uh, it's the invocation of race in a place where it does not belong. So where a place where it might belong is like if you're hiring for an aid worker in a violent area of Africa, and you're like, look, no white people, because if you're white, you're more likely to get injured and die. Like that, that to me would not be racist in any sort of negative connotation. Uh, I don't think asking the question, are there differences between races, makes one racist. You know, if, well, if, what if you believe those differences mean black people are more inherently violent and you use that as a police officer to motivate what types of people you stop? Okay, again, it would depend on the reality of the world that we live again, in. See, th- but you- this is my issue, though. All Racism has lost any rhetorical meaning at this point because you're relying on factors which you could only ascertain through like a deep psychiatric analysis yeah. of every individual. Okay, well, that, then that to me is, is utterly irrelevant. I don't care about intent. If you're a police officer and you're locking up more black folk because you mistakenly believe they're more genetically predisposed to crime, the world is made better if that is treated as racist. Got it. If we, if we hold, if we wait hand and foot 
on on like the individual explanation for every of the millions of actors that participate in the systems we live in, we can't actually bring about systemic change. Mm -hmm. It was after all in the model of the abolitionists that Martin Luther King marched, and it was in the model of his marches now that BLM marches. But those models, the abolitionists and the civil rights activists, they did not rely on the model you used. They knew they lived in a racist system and they mm -hmm. called it out for what it was, even though that system is merely a, a, a mesh of millions of actors who may or may not have had individual racial biases. At the end of the day, the ability to call all of it racist is necessary to challenge it. I, I understand what you're saying. So that, that um, and again, uh, where I would disagree, and there'd be areas, by the way, with all this where I concede, like if I interact with the cop and he's got these, to me, brain dead reasons for believing like, well, well I saw one time and this guy did X, Y, I was like, that doesn't jive to me to be a cohesive worldview with anything other than hate of a different skin color at its core. Um, but again, that's that's me. I would be slow to call a lot of different names, not just racist. I would be slow to mm -hmm. to say a lot of things. Um, and I understand your point that we want to wrap it in where I would where I would caution where Ben is cautioning is saying all of it. And where where I think the line that I we don't need to get to is somewhere less than all Republican voters and somewhere more than I need to do a deep psychiatric evaluation of every person yeah, in order to I use the word. Some police are racist. Yes. Do I think that some Republicans are racist? Yes. Do I think that some Democrats are racist? Yes. Do I think that all Republicans and all police and all Democrats are racist? Not, no, no. Well, can, can my definition of race. Can we move on from it to a different point? Is that OK with you or do you want the last word? No, no, no. I appreciate your perspectives. We discussed mm -hmm. it extensively, and I'm, I'm glad. I don't often get conversations like these, especially mm -hmm. not with Republicans. <laughs> I, um, I don't know. I just, I guess, for me, like when General Attorney Barr is considering sedition charges for Black Lives Matter protesters, like I just have to wonder, like the people who voted Trump in, the people who got in the president, who was able to appoint General Barr. Well, now he's, now he's been let go. But the, the people who brought us to that threshold, I mean it's the matter of motivation. I don't know. And and if you're talking about consequential outcomes as well, I mean, it could well be the case that many of them genuinely have no racial animus and don't even know, mm -hmm. they don't even know what it is they're supporting. Sure. Most voters in the United States genuinely have no idea what it is they're doing. But like, at the end of the day, after World War II ended, we didn't only march the extra bad German citizens to the theaters to show them pictures of the concentration camps. Mm -hmm. We marched all of them. So, but we didn't put I them all to know. death. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. No, no, there but was we didn't put them all to yes, death. Yes, there was different we, we degrees. Graded, of, we graded. No, no, no we didn't. Nazis. Well, but I don't want to put every Republican to death. Uh, what you know? What I want from most Republicans, even the ones that have called racist, which solve them, I just want to talk with them. I think most of them are kind, good-hearted people. Mm -hmm. I think that a, that understanding the totality of the way our system works and how it disadvantages certain people is literally like a collegiate exercise. I would never be a, like, I I can't be like. It would be silly of me to expect everybody to get behind this, not just Democrats, but, or not just Republicans, but Democrats, too. I just want to talk with folks. Mm -hmm. But I will be honest about my convictions if asked about them, especially when I'm not in the context of having a conversation with um, No, for sure. With one of them directly. And I think you, you know? should I think you should always be honest. I, I think to the extent that you can, if you were able to reflect and get to the point where you honestly didn't think that all Republicans are racist, I think it would help you with your progressive agenda. But if you can't get there, I don't think you should lie. So, yeah, my only thing, I guess, would be to at some point meditate on it and see if you can get to that honestly. Because I I'm do very think nice it would be to, them, to your, you know? to your <laughs> I think funny enough, I think it would be to your advantage. But again, that's that's not an argument for truth. No, that's no, an no. argument for it's, it's an argument to reflect on it. Mm -hmm. And if you but can't you get believe... there, if you can't get there, then so be it. <laughs> do you believe it could actually be preferable to adopt my perspective on the matter when we're talking about broad 
social Could. arguments, broad yeah. civilizational distinctions. Oh yeah, I come the- to the same place as you, which is that I, which is that I feel truth is my first uh, has to be what I'm beholden to. So the reason I don't think all Republicans are racist isn't because I think it's a good belief. It's just what I think is true. Um, okay. So I actually have the same. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, ultimately, we all walk in the same direction. <laughs> I think that's what matters most to me. This is something that I've found with a lot of Republicans as well, because like I'm a socialist. There aren't many socialists in America. And, you know, that's fine. Whatever. <laughs> it hurts me personally, but I try not to take it. You know, I, I try not to, uh, you know, take it to the heart. And um, I, what matters most to me is that we're all sort of pushing in the same direction on mm-hmm. these difficult questions that we're never going to find hard answers to as long as we're moving together. And I think that a lot, we are on this. I think that most Republicans are as well, because a lot of them just want good education for their kids. They want good health care, so they fucking die at 65. We're all moving in the same general direction. And everything between here and the destination is an opportunity to further refine uh, the arguments we'll necessarily have when we eventually arrive at those disagreements, you know? So I'll make one last uh, sort of utility personal thing and then we can move to a different topic so hopefully this brings us together though uh at in the midst of the blm protest i i sat down and and tried to do some meditation and, and did some white fragility soul searching if you will you know yeah. Is, yeah. is robin right did i <laughs> um and so what i sat down when i found is uh first there was a layer of defensiveness some of it justified because i do think that robin d'angelo comes in guns guns smoking you know uh if it, if she thinks she's a witch type shit which I didn't mm-hmm. appreciate. But what I found beneath that was every ism in the world was, holy shit, I, I separate myself from other people on every conceivable metric that I can find. Am I wealthier, taller, more handsome? Do, did, I, do, did you grow up in the same state as me? Like There's a part of, I think, my psyche and every human psyche that is desperate to be special and to stand above. And, and I think that 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 uh, exists inside of me, and I really do think it exists inside of everybody. A small element of that is racism. But what I actually found when I kind of looked into it is that it was uh, dwarfed compared to the, uh, the, the myriad of other ways that I try to be better. Do I have more subscribers than this person? You know what I mean? Like I am constantly comparing and, and bettering and setting up hierarchies, which, and when I looked into that, what I found was that I personally, and this might not be everybody, responded better to compassion better to uh, setting up a situation where it was not, I was not beyond redemption for having this, these ideas inside of me. And when I allowed, like when racism wasn't used uh, against myself as this horrible thing, which I would need to be contrite for forever, I was, I was allowed myself to do a deeper exploration, which I think had even more fruit than finding racism. Because what I found was everything, you know what I mean? Like all of these, these, these ways in which I try to be better. Um, and so perhaps what I've tried to do, and, and I think there can be more than one way to, to go attack these problems of people trying to stand over one another. The, the angle that I am trying to come at increasingly on the podcast is one of understanding and going, holy shit, I'm just like the worst, the worst person that I know. Like if I think of the worst individual, the most racist white neo-Nazi, there are elements in them, maybe not racially driven, that I find inside of myself. And I am better suited to have compassion for that person and empathy and not cut them down because the way that I treat them is the way that I treat myself internally. And if I attack myself, I'm going to shut down and that nugget of hate is not going to go anywhere. Does that make sense as a No, yeah, as completely. A way to no, this? Compassion is 
compassion and empathy are like two of the most essential components to any kind of political activism. Mm -hmm. The least effective political activists in the universe, this is actually a scientific fact. They did a study at Harvard, okay? The least effective uh, uh, political advocates in the universe in all of human history are Twitter lefties, okay? (laughs) Because they are the most angry, contemptuous motherfuckers on the face of the earth. They are insanely aggressive uh, if you disagree with them. I think this is um, in impractical approach. I think that compassion is really important because at the end of the day, even hateful people don't really experience that hate internally the same way the objects of it experience externally. If you're a black person and you're talking with some virulent racist, that can be, as a black person, pretty terrible experience for a lot of reasons, but inside of the racist person usually isn't like some cold-hearted, calculated hatred. What it usually is is fear or disgust or anger or some other primordial emotion they don't have the strength to control and deal with. I think most people are emotionally weak in that way. I'm including myself in that. And it can lead people in a lot of really bad directions. So you should be able to reach out to people like that. One of the worst things the left ever did was make itself, um, put itself in an ivory tower because the you have all these like... Um, these guys online, and a lot of them believe some really shitty things too. Like, you know, 15 year old online guys, a lot of these people are pretty sexist. You know, I know I was there, but you grow out of that and you think like, okay, maybe some of these left ideas sound all right, but all the lefties, they're contemptuous and condescending and antagonistic and holier and purer, uh, purer than thou. And you can't move in that direction. They won't let you, there are no friends to be found there. So you stay where you are or you go right. I think you should always open, you know, uh, open your arms to new friends, even if they disagree with you. It's, if nothing else, it's enormously effective. I think it also makes you a better person, just on the whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very much of that, uh, that mindset, and I, and I suspected that, that you would be as well. I do think that uh, some of when we watch and when Ben watch you, I mean, you play a character from time to time, right? I and mean, that exists inside of you, and it's not fake, but it is an aspect of your personality that is shown that is. Uh, at times, and I don't mean this insultingly, like not as compassionate, just, you know, more, more boppy over the head. But I'm, I'm not surprised to find that, uh, that you, you hold both inside of you, I guess. For me, I think that contemptuous anger and like sympathy are two sides of the same coin. Because when I'm really angry at a person I'm arguing with, when I'm really denouncing them, it's usually because I'm disappointed in them. Mm-hmm. It's usually now this isn't the case with like Ben Shapiro or Trump or some huge public figure. But if I'm arguing with a person directly, usually my anger stems from this feeling of like, why are you the way you are? Why do you suck so bad? What's wrong with you? And if I can move them past that point, if I can reach out to them, if we find a point we agree on, that feels amazing. It feels like re- like breaking through a veil, you know, mm-hmm. to like embrace them. After all the anger and antagonism, it's like, okay, we've you've paid your penance. I've yelled at you. But if we can agree on a point here, this has a constructive end. And that feels infinitely better than an argument where I just scream at them and hang up because they're frustrating. You yeah. know? I, have a, I have a question. And this, this might, I guess this is kind of personal. Um, I watched your Politics 101. You talk about how values, and I very much agree, are the foundation of policy. Like, why talk policy if we can't get on the same page with, with the direction we're heading? My, my pet theory is that values, and I don't think this is a crazy claim, are uh, they're forged by your childhood, by the way you grow up, by your relationship with your parents and the relationship with authority in your life can often be a stand-in for how you feel about the government later in life. Um, it's not a one-to-one Freudian thing. But uh, I, when I look at myself, I see my, my relationship to authority has shifted as my 
understanding of my relationship with my dad has shifted. Like I was a motherfucking pain in the ass arguer, stand-ups posed. And when I was in my young 20s, dude, I was at the rallies. Fuck the man. You know, we got to take this guy down. And as I've seen- Fuck in, my dad. <laughs> I mean the government. <laughs> Fuck my dad. And what I've seen in myself is as I have grown and uh, not even externally, internally sort of repaired my relationship with him. And it's had external components as well. I've seen value in- Things in the world that are traditional or conservative. I'm not 100% conservative, but I, I do feel I'm more uh, of a healthy balance where I'm not outright rejecting the status quo because they don't get to tell me what to do. And I'm curious for you if you see any of that in yourself because you're obviously – you don't wind up being an eloquent online arguer out of nowhere. You know what I mean? Like that's not – that doesn't just uh, pop out of nowhere. So I'm curious. You don't need to <laughs> butter my biscuit. Um, <laughs> it, I, where my, does that come my, from? Family is almost comically good. Yeah. Um, I mean, my immediate family. I don't talk that much with my extended family, mm -hmm. who I think are mostly Republicans. But whatever the case may be, the, my immediate family was just like such a, such a, a great upbringing. It's almost boring to talk about. All my friends, everyone I know, they have some problem with their family. Mm -hmm. Like, one, like one family member left, or like their one family member was a cunt, or they never got along with their f brother or whatever. Um, I, I have, I have two parents, I have a younger brother and they were, they were pretty fantastic and they're liberal. They're not socialist, but they're liberal leaning. And, um, I think in, in terms of like how that affected me formatively, I think the big one was, as you said, public speaking, because my, my mom liked music and my dad had a, he had his own company, like a little thing, a little side project where he would give these big speeches to his friends and stuff about the details are boring, but he really liked public speaking. And I took that from him because mm -hmm. to me, that was like the old, that was the apex of masculinity Yeah. Uh, when I was young. Like that was the thing that I aspired. It wasn't like the big muscles or whatever, though I did want to have big muscles. Don't get me wrong. Uh, still do. But um, <laughs> the being able to speak publicly and so many people talk about how hard and scary it is. But every time I did it, it just excited me. I never got scared. It was, it felt like I was like a different person type of person than everybody else. Now, of course, I realize the, what that actually was, is that I'm autistic. And that my <laughs> special fixation, the thing that I got autistically fixated on was public speaking. So, you know, Freudian, whatever, there's always an underlying explanation, but I got really, really into it. And I would take every possible opportunity, I'd always be the one to present the project growing up and up. And when I got to college, I actually got worse at it. When I got to university, because I moved away from my parents. I took community college in Santa Monica as, you know, SCCC and uh, live with my folks at the time. I move up to Humboldt in California. I'm away from my folks and I don't talk publicly as much. I get worse and worse at it. I felt really bad about that too, because like that was my big skill, you know, it turns out that being around, you know, the right people can be a big inspiration in that respect. But eventually I got over that, got better, graduated. And six months after I graduated, I decided to try doing stuff on YouTube and now I'm here. Wow. And I got better at it. And, you know, it's a matter of practice and all. But um, I think like I do agree with what you say about values being formed early on, because now I have this massive respect just for people who like sharing things they care about with an audience. The ability to convey like uh, appreciation, that's something I respect a lot. I think it's very enviable. I think the world is much more interesting when people are open about the things they like. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, for There's a couple questions that I had as you sort of talked about your upbringing. One, one is my own <laughs> ridiculous, do you do psychedelics? So I'll, I'll pop that in here. Um, have you ever done any uh, psilocybin, anything like that? I can't actually, believe no. it or not, it'd kill me. No kidding. Uh, I take, 
I take lithium carbonate for mm. um, bipolar disorder, oh, no and kidding. it has a lethal reaction with psilocybin. Oh, wow. So good to know. Well, I'm definitely, glad I didn't convince you. I was like, you got to try it, man. Um, no, I, I had a doctor <laughs> tell me that once. And uh, yeah, no, I'm really, really glad he did because he actually <laughs> told me that after I tried psilocybin, oh. it turns out, um, it turns out the first time I tried it, it was like a dud batch or something like that, wow. which I guess saved my life. Um, cause I didn't feel nothing from it. And, um, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, there you go. So be wow. careful with that, I guess. Jesus. Well, what I was going to say, and there's other ways to get there is that as someone who is interested in the foundations of things, the values and how they get for me, that has been one of the most interesting paths to pursue because you know, you've, you've got your axiom, you know, what is it, what matters? And, uh, I'm not saying do psilocybin, but if there is another way, <laughs> that was the most interesting way at the last five or 10 years that I've been able to learn about my own axioms. Um, and it's been, it's just taught me how biographical so many of them were. Like I wouldn't have listed this, all this, you know, daddy shit to you six years ago, but. <laughs> well, it's important. We, because we're, um, we're systemically disencouraged from engaging in introspection. Mm -hmm. There are so many systems in the way our society currently works that make it difficult for us to introspect about why we are the way we are. Mm -hmm. People really don't think about themselves that much. I think a lot of it is because of how busy we are. Like there's always a tech thing to do, media to consume. And by the way, that's great. I love anime, okay? I'll mm -hmm. watch it all the time, it's fine. But a lot of people, they do this. There was a Louis CK joke. It's not a joke actually, it's just sad. We was talking about how, um, you always play music when you're driving around because if you don't, all you can hear is like the hole in your heart, you cry or something mm, yeah, like that. Yeah, you can't stay still. I think that's a lot of people are like that. They can't like be alone or think about themselves. Used to be everyone had to. When you were tilling the fields for 11 hours a day, it's not like you're, you, you don't have like a Airpod. stereo next yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you, it used to be easier to think about yourself. I think a lot of people struggle with that. And it's really, really sad because you can't really be happy unless you do that. Unless, or you could luck out and be accidentally happy, I guess. But, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I find that with politics in that uh, when I find myself clicking on YouTube, searching Reddit, and I, I have learned that I enjoy triggering myself. I like to find news that pisses me off. <laughs> and if I slow down and I look at that process, I go... I'm deathly afraid of boredom because of that hole. You know what I mean? Like because of that vacuous sound that is there if you just actually sit still. And I think you're dead right. I think people have, uh, society has provided us with thousands if not millions of ways to get out of that nonstop. And I'm guilty of providing people some of those outlets in the form of our videos and this podcast, for instance. But uh, I'm trying to have more and more quiet time. And it is it has been incredibly useful, assisted by psychedelics and not, to not just learn more about myself, but to add so much deeper context to why I think the things I do about politics or about anything. Um, so I'm a big fan of of the slowness. I want to ask you. The, yeah. Well, go ahead. Oh, I, I just want to say I like I per, so personally, I'm a media junkie. Mm -hmm. I always have been. I like consuming a bunch of it. I just wish people did it more mindfully. Yeah. This is the thing that gets me. You know, silent time's great. Everyone should at least a couple minutes a day. But um when they'll watch something, they'll just kick on Netflix and they'll just like, mm. they'll just zone out as they watch it. Or they'll be on their phone. What are you doing if you're on your <laughs> phone and watching a show? There are people who have music on, then they turn Netflix on and then they pick up their phone. I see this. I've seen people do this. It's insane. Yeah. They're like, 
They, it's it's literally like white noise they're pouring into their brains. I think it's very important to be very mindful about what you're doing. Like you get up in the morning, what am I doing next? And you think like step by step the process because a lot of people sleepwalk through their free time. And it's really sad when you can remember every minute of the eight hours you spend at the office job you hate. And then you spend the entire free time you have for the rest of the day at your home in a bleary mind haze mm. where nothing feels like it actually happened. You vaguely remember having food. You vaguely remember watching an episode it's like really mentally destructive. It's no surprise. So many people are getting on meds these days yeah. when like, this is how they're sleepwalking through life. So yeah, I don't know. I could ramble about that. <laughs> well, well, we'll take a, a turn here. So uh, incorporating a lot of this, I'm sure there's areas where I might disagree with you. Like we did in the middle of the podcast, but socialism on through what we've talked about. I agree with you that I live at a particular historical moment, which is less than morally perfect. Uh, and I have an opportunity to push that boundary forward in my own behavior, I run a small business, I make consumer choices about things, I interact with people. How do you think about being the change you want to see in the world, if you will? And what sort of things do you do you try to incorporate or do you think would be good for me to incorporate? I mean, we should all do the best we can, but I think a lot of people make the mistake of assuming there's like some daily threshold they have to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, like the problems in our world, like big ones, are complicated, interconnected enough that thinking of yourself as an individual cog and part of a larger process can be really alienating. I think it important that people focus on smaller stuff around them. There's an old proverb, I think it's Chinese, it's something like the man who tends to his family cha like changes the family, mm -hmm. the, ma the, fa the man who, ch the good family makes the good village, the good village makes the good city, the good city makes the good province, the good province makes the good kingdom. Like, there's something to that, I think there's, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean like, don't look up. It doesn't mean don't pay attention to what's going on because you should, you absolutely should. But a lot of people who want to be better people, they think way, 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 way too high. Mm. So like on really basic stuff, I mean, local organizing and like volunteering is really fun and rewarding. And I mean that in a selfish way too, not just like, oh, I got to, you know, scrub 500,000 homeless people's feet this year. That's amazing. You know, Though I guess that would actually be really amazing. 500,000 people. But also like socially, he, like I've heard so, so many of my fans, I'm like, Hey, go out and volunteer. I'm not leaving the house. I've streamed. That's I'm genetically incapable. I'm glued to my seat, but you can, it's not too late for you. And they do. And they meet friends and they meet partners and loved ones and stuff because it's a, unique way to get out there and socialize with others outside of the traditional context of school and work. Um, Stuff like that's really important. And being good to the people around you, too. Because I think if you're good to the people around you, you get better at understanding your um, your capabilities when it comes to meaningfully affecting the world around you. Mm -hmm. If you're nice to, like, a person on the street, literally like a cashier or something, you're nice or friendly to them, they talk a little, they smile or something like that, not only does that feel good for you, too, but then you get, like, there's a muscle inside of you for kindness to other people, and it, like, gets worked. And a lot of people don't even use it. They just, like... They want to get through everything they do as quickly as possible because then they have more time to be numb at home. Mm -hmm. If they exercise that muscle more often, I think they can do some pretty extraordinary stuff. And then maybe one day there will be an opportunity. They'll have a chance to do something big and they want that muscle to be strong when that time comes. Yeah. What about democracy? And I'm, I'm you know, you're, you're, I don't know how large your organization is. If there is an organization, if you're getting helped, we have... <laughs> You know, Justin's sitting with us right here. He's got his mask on. It's coronavirus safe. Uh, we've got people that work for us in various places all around the world. Some of them mm -hmm. live in the Philippines and we pay less than we could pay an American. You know what I mean? Like we've I, I am an actor at a small level in the world. And and I am a CEO or co-CEO of a 
small business. So how should I or do you think about advancing human goodness via the structure of one's organization? How do you consider pay? How do you consider democracy? Um, Because I own half of the business, Ben owns half the business, and everybody else is is at at will employee for us right now. Mm Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, the prescriptive argument I'd make is economic democracy, giving mm-hmm. everyone like a small stake. Even in, at the size of a business? Yeah, it, dep- it depends on the size. And um, I, I mean, I don't know the specifics of your organization. One thing that's really weird about like online stuff or mm-hmm. like organizations that involve media production is that there's a very asymmetrical distribution of responsibilities. Even if you have 100 people working in a production, if only one of them gets in front of the camera, that person is a very different relationship to all the work being done than the rest of them do. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to stuff like that, figuring out like the appropriate amount of distributed power is really, really difficult. For me, uh, the people who work for me, like my editor, my head moderator, content manager, these people, they, um, they, they get paid like cuts, like proceed percentages of what I make. I try to pay them good and I, um, give them complete creative control over whatever it is they do. Mm. So that's my, the most I can do. I don't even have an LLC, so I don't actually have anything for them to take an official stake in. But to that extent, I think that works. What I personally plan on doing in 2022. Now this is for me particular. I'm not saying everyone got to do this, but so elections, right? A lot of these purple districts, these congressional seats are being decided by people who are making no more than like $100,000. They're raising no more than like low six digits for their congressional campaigns. I thought it would be nice to make a pack and throw some of my money into that, like Mm -hmm. a political action committee, try to see if I could swing a couple of congressional seats, you know? Got it. Interesting. Um, yeah, I have two, two recommendations and books that you might enjoy. One is called uh, Reinventing Organizations. Uh, that one has has motivated me and to think about the way that our organization is run. And it talks about it's it's beautiful because it's got that democratic distribution of power, but it's not one person, one vote. And it talks about companies that are built on this model that are sometimes like 7,000 people big. There's a, a nursing business in Amsterdam or the Netherlands, rather, that is the biggest group of nurses in the Netherlands that is self-organized um, type co-op work. And the thing that I love about it the most is that it, approaches the way that you handle an organization by reimagining the fundamental metaphor that drives it. So the fundamental metaphor of an organization, we've said it, cogs in a machine. An organization is a machine. It's got a brain up top. It speaks at the cogs. Cogs turn. They're alienated from their work. You know, all the money gets funneled up top because that's the big brain. If anybody has an idea, you don't get to implement it. You get to tell the person above you up and down that chain chain of command. Um, The metaphor that this book starts to get you to think about is of an organism, which is distributed power, you know, hubs of power. It's not one-to-one. Every cell is not created equal, but it's uh, been highly interesting for me to read, and it's something that we're trying to incorporate with that increased autonomy, increased ownership that that you mentioned. Um, the other book, what did you mention? So it was Reinventing Organizations. And what was the last thing that you had said? Running for office? Running oh, running for office. And, and not, not <clears throat> say that you can't do this. Have you ever read uh, Doing Good Better? I've heard of people talking about it, but so I haven't read it myself. You, you could read the Wikipedia blurb of effective altruism. And this doesn't mean that you can't do things, but it encourages you to, when you're spending a dollar, to think not all charities created equal in terms of consequentialist outcomes. If you give to one charity versus another, it can have a thousand to X outcome in terms of the quality of improvement of human lives or the reduction of human suffering. And people don't think about that with charity because we have not been conditioned to think about outcomes. That's, we just think of how much did I give as if that was an absolute good. 
Um, and I'm not saying that super PACs couldn't fall into this, but it has encouraged me to spend most of my money in the developing world, most of the money that I give away, that is. Um, mm -hmm. Not that you can't do that because super PAC might have a high, might be a very high leverage point of like, wow, this can create change on a massive scale. Um, but just something to, that you might find interesting as you're Yeah, it's, it's funny it. that you like brought up third worldism earlier mm -hmm. in this conversation. There are a lot of socialists who believe that the only vanguard for socialism that has an actual shot <laughs> at functioning is in the developing world because the overlapping economic systems of a place like America are way too complicated, interdependent, and tightly controlled by the autocracy to ever see a socialist revolution take place. So you actually want to funnel as much revolutionary support to the third world as possible because if they have a revolution, that means that the economic structure is broken for our country and it makes it harder for America to maintain global hegemony. Mm. But, um, well, not just America, like other, Everybody. you know. <laughs> let's, right, yeah. let's plug it. <laughs> so people want to go to charitywater.org slash charisma. They can donate with our campaign to help get clean water to people in Africa. If you donate $40, you get someone clean water for 10 years. We think that's a good one. Um, we've, tried, we've tried to run the numbers and see. Which which has the broadest impact on people? Yeah, it uh, seems second order effects, etc. Say water is pretty fucking important. It's pretty foundational. No, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty important. The most the the thing that gets my heartstrings the most is kids who just never have a shot at changing the world or achieving their dreams, right? And so, per dollar, the biggest impact seems to be water, uh, malaria nets, and stomach parasite pills, all in yes. Africa. Yeah, because <laughs> with with like a, a very achievable amount of money donated, $1, $5, $40, you make a, an actual life-changing impact. You know what I mean? Versus if I were to want to send a kid to Harvard, I'd have to raise like $250,000 <laughs> to put one kid through Harvard. And yeah, with these things in Africa, an actual achievable amount of money to donate can be life-changing. And now all of a sudden, instead of this eight-year-old kid getting a mouth tumor because he can't get access to clean water, he gets to go to school and live a life. So yeah, that's for me, that's been the one that's most motivating. Mm -hmm. Cool. So man, I think we've had a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Is there anything before we uh, we say our goodbyes that you wanted to chat about or, or talk about? Man, we hit, I, we, um, we hit on the consequentialism. We hit mm -hmm. on the, um, yeah, on, the, on my life story. <laughs> I'm trying to think. So it's good subjects. I'm trying to think what would be a good cap off. No, you know what? I'll 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 just say this. First of all, really appreciate you both talking to me. Seriously, thank oh, you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, additionally, if there's if there's anything I'm to leave it off on, you know, one of the big I guess tragedies of American political discourse is that we give names to things that aren't real, and we we take away the names of things that are. I think, for example, a lot of political discussion in this country. Everything from the war on drugs to the satanic panic to a lot of modern day whinging about Antifa comes from a sort of manufactured fear. There are underlying things that, I mean, drugs are real. There's a concern to be had, but the way the discourse manifests is so divorced from how the world actually works. And then you very real things, talks about like, say, for example, a UBI or universal healthcare that get either completely wiped from public discourse, because nobody talked about a UBI before Yang, really. I mean, it was a really, really marginal talking point before Yang brought it up. And um, and and if they are brought up, they're usually stigmatized, like, severely, uh, which is really unfortunate. And it makes conversations really difficult, too. A lot of people forget, but, like, this country is still 
largely in you know the wraps of the post cold war red scare and the way we talk about political development is framed in that type of language and that hurts everybody not just left-leaning people because right-leaning people also want clean water and good schooling mm-hmm. um it would be better i think if we could have these conversations fairly and i think we're getting closer too because bernie sanders made socialism less of a dirty word for everyone and maybe that's progress maybe it's not i don't know <laughs> But I do hope that whatever happens in 2024, we're able to have these big political discussions about like real issues rather than like Benghazi, Russia, you know, um, whatever, like whatever nonsense culture war bullshit gets brought up to distract from the real issues. Sure. Yeah. And and just to echo what you said, I think that uh, it's so easy for words, take socialism to completely derail a conversation between two people with fundamentally the same or very similar value sets. And I think to the degree that we have hopefully modeled some of that on this in this conversation is like, try to get down to the nuts and bolts of what people want the world to look like and why they want it to look. You'll find a ton of commonality and then you can build towards, I don't give a shit if you call it socialism, capitalism, dogeism, doesn't matter to me. Like, let's, let's try to make sure that people have freedom to excel up to a certain degree, but also they, they can't, they can't fall beneath a certain floor. Yeah, that's, and I think- that's my joke. I don't care what people call it. Call it super capitalism, you know, yeah. capitalism so hard that everybody gets to own private property, you know, um, that's well, actually however- a good relabel because it, it kind of makes sense. Like super yeah, capitalism. However, everyone owns the business. We're all capitalists now. However you want to frame it. I don't care. I just want people to be happy. And, um, yeah, these it's, it's funny because earlier you brought up something and I wanted to mention this but I forgot at the time, you brought up capitalist realism, people's inability to imagine a system better than the one they live in now. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the end of history, just an idiotic concept. And I think a lot of people really do live under that impression. To them, the end of the world is glass and and steel, high-rise skyscrapers, Mm -hmm. uh, 7-Elevens around every street corner, and like the suburbs. And that's like the end of history in their mind. That's it. We've done it. We've achieved it. But like, no. We can do so much crazy shit. We are, it is insane what we are capable of. And every day I wake up, you know, and I hear some news out of the science community because pure researchers, like people working for federal grants and stuff, you know, they're learning about like dark matter and mathematical proofs for, for bending space time. And I think there is no way that a universe could have those formulas and this society as the end state for human civilization coexisting it's not possible there has to be something more or less for one or the other so hopefully we get there you know yeah, yeah. Well, try we talk about on the podcast a lot like how including animals in morality is going to be the next step but i do think it's it's uh whatever it will be morality tends to march forward if you take a step back on accident in general i feel like humanity is getting more inclusive compassionate over yeah. time more inclusive over time to your point everybody was racist if you go far <laughs> enough back in time no matter the political party so you know i definitely do agree that that as time marches on, we do get better, if that makes sense. Hopefully, we don't blow ourselves up. And I want to I agree add, with the animal rights thing, too. Are you, are you, uh, I wanted to ask about that vegetarian, vegan? Do you, are, I'm, I'm not, but I support the ethical structures. Yeah. I think we should do everything we can to disincentivize the harm of animals. Got it. Yeah. No, to me, that's, that's the, um, the great American moral crisis of the 2020s to me. And when we, that's from a historical perspective, when we get to 2080 and we've got lab grown meat, I think they're going to look back at us and be like, how the hell did they, yeah, did they ma- square that? Like maybe million, not million, millions of chicks every yeah. single day. It's like unfathomable how many die. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, hopefully, hopefully we cut that out sometime hey soon. Hey guys, huh? hey guys, maybe not so much. <laughs> I uh, I have to go because I'm gonna stream soon, and I want cool. to eat lots of yeah, chicken yeah, nuggets yeah, yeah. before then, think? and not think about where they came from. <laughs> um, but um, I, I really appreciate both of you speaking to me. Hopefully, we can do it again in the future. Absolutely, yeah, man. Sure. Have a good stream. Sorry if I was too rambling. By the way, like I said, no, no, that was great. solo live streams. You know, perfect though. All right, man. We'll talk to you later. Be well. Better. Yet. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.